Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 24 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. For those of you listening in real time, it is currently early February 2024, and it's been a few months since I've posted an episode, and I thank you all for your patience. The holidays were an eventful time here at the Kyle's home, and it was difficult finding time to work on the podcast. But here we are in a new year, And I must say, I am starting off 2024 full throttle. In fact, the number of guests I already have lined up is beginning to worry me, if I must be honest. As I've probably mentioned before, the rest of my life is quite busy, so that doesn't leave a lot of time for podcasting. But the amount of interest in the podcast and the correspondence I receive is continuing to build. So in light of all that, I've made a decision. Thus far, I've spent lots of time and effort editing each podcast. Although working diligently to create the best audio possible has taught me a lot, it's also radically limited the number of shows I can produce. Well, from now on, in order to limit the amount of time I spend on each episode and to ensure that I post episodes on a more regular basis, I've decided to reduce the amount of time and effort I spend on editing each episode. So I apologize in advance if occasionally the quality of the podcast doesn't live up to its previous standards, but bear with me and recognize that I'm just trying to get the episodes posted as soon as possible. So if you appreciate what I'm doing here, please visit thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support and help me free up more time to create the content that you enjoy. Every penny is appreciated, and to all of you who have donated, to you I am eternally grateful. A little warning concerning this episode. George and I speak freely, and we discuss some challenging circumstances. The gravity of these situations is often expressed in colorful language, so if that is something that concerns you, consider yourself warned. This is a podcast of, by, and for Christians, but it's also about real people and their real-life experiences. So without further delay, let's introduce this episode's guest. Today, we welcome George Monty to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. George is a digital media maverick whose journey from a UPS driver to a skilled digital marketer is nothing short of remarkable. With a foundation built on exceptional work ethic, attention to detail, and a commitment to customer service during his UPS career, George seamlessly transitioned into the digital world. As a digital social media expert, he leverages a unique background to craft creative strategies connecting with a diverse audience and driving brand engagement across platforms. Today, George shares insights from his unique life and discusses the intersection of his UPS career with his passion for creating impactful digital campaigns. 
George Monty, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Clint Kyles, I couldn't be happier. You know, I've I've talked to you briefly on and off the air a few times, and I'm really excited to be here, man. I love what you're doing. I think we share some similar passions, and I'm honored to be here, man. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely think we share some similar passions, especially when it comes to uh, the intersection of spirituality and psychedelics. You've got an, an abundance of content that encapsulates both of those things. So I have no doubt that um, our conversation today will be fabulous. Thank you, man. I appreciate the faith that you have <laughs> and the faith in me. <laughs> well, it's easy to have faith in you, George. You're a, you're a consummate professional at this. So. <laughs> Why don't you just begin by telling us a little bit about your early life, man? Where'd you grow up? What kind of, uh, you know, family dynamics were at play? What kind of spiritual influences, if any, um, you had? And uh, how did those things shape you from the beginning? Well, first off, thanks for the question, man. I don't know that I've ever had the opportunity to. I got 600 episodes on my podcast, and I don't know that I've ever had the opportunity to express how I kind of came up, man. So I'm really thankful for the for the opportunity and, and the question. And so if if there was truck driving royalty, my family would be like the the, the kings and queens of truck driving royalty. <laughs> my um my my grandma, God rest her soul, had my mom when she was 14. And she's the oldest of eight. And interesting story. My my grandma had my mom with a man who was like 25, I think. And he ended up not sticking around. And then my grandma remarried Jim Brown, who became the father to my mom and the, the other seven children that they had together. He came from Mississippi and he started a truck company he started multiple trucking companies in california and his brother tiny tiny brown uh they, he started a trucking company as well so my my mom uh her mom was 14 and she grew up and then she kind of took on the role of raising the other kids and they most of the boys uncle john uncle jeff uncle joe uncle jimmy they all ended up driving trucks and then the girls ended up working in the office and doing payroll and doing the books and that kind of stuff. And the reason that's relevant is that I grew up on a truck yard. You know, I would go out to the truck yard as a little boy and they would, I would just go run around the old, you know, uh, it was a big truck yard and they had equipment and my uncles would take me and sit me on their lap and drive around like the, the loaders. And, and um, you know, on, on weekends we'd go up to the uh, truck driving Olympics where my uncles would get in the, 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 the loader and try to pick up an egg, you know, and they would get out and do the transfer trailer and run around real fast. And I grew up in that particular set. And for those listening, there's a lot of knowledge that happens in that area, but it's not the knowledge that you learn in school. You know, my, my mom ended up marrying a guy who was a truck driver. My dad, he came back from Vietnam and he got married. They were, they met as neighbors. And so I kind of grew up in this sort of, truck driving, you know, blue collar, lived experience type of world. And um and in some in ways it, it was in California. Yeah. It, you know, interesting too. Like so I'm almost 50 years old and I grew up in California and my my grandfather's truck yard 
was on an Indian reservation. So I really got to see without understanding just this transformation because as I grew older, that same truck yard became a casino. So I got to see the way in which like, you know, there were all these people that worked on the truck yard and there was so much poverty in that particular area. I remember going up and being like, oh man, it's, it's, it's really tough up here, you know? But then, you know, fast forward 40 years, there's a casino and it, it just changed and stuff like that. I, I kind of birdwalk a little bit. So let me, let me bring it back. I, I grew up at the truck yard and I got to learn a lot of cool stuff, a lot of lived experience. And, um, a lot of my uncles, they were all truck drivers. And then, uh, my dad and my mom got divorced when I was probably like nine. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, love in the family, but there was also a lot of disability. And by disability, I mean, my dad was bipolar and so he would be crushing it. We'd have tons of money. And then he'd just lay on the couch for like six months. And, you know, as, as a young couple, you know, there was no therapy at that time. Like you didn't know. And my mom wanted a better life and my dad wanted a better life, but they didn't really have the tools to communicate effectively about what was going on in their life. And so my sister and I kind of fell into this world of lived experience where you got to see the very best of someone and the very worst of someone. And I think that happens to a lot of kids, regardless if their parents may have um, some problems or not. I think we all grow up in this area where we get to see the best and the worst of people. And we're children. And so we don't have the tools to thoroughly understand what's happening, but we are absorbing everything. And so for me getting to see the trials and the tribulations and the dishes being flung across the living room and spending time with my aunts and my uncles and going to the truck yard and seeing the way the world works for me was my first introduction into spirituality. And I mean that because like, I knew that there was something going on bigger than me. You know, I knew that like there was something going on that was beyond my control. And so I guess it, that's kind of my first touch with spirituality was like, man, there's so much tragedy here, but there's also so much love. Like, I feel really thankful to be here and have these people that love me, but sometimes I'm scared out of my damn mind. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to be here, you know? And my, my, if I, if I touch on the idea of spirituality and, and upbringing and truck driving, we've moved around a lot. I moved around once every year for like 18 years. And I remember one time we had moved into this house and uh, this guy had come like, it was late at night. It must've been like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And my dad being bipolar, he would have these amazing ideas and people would fund his ideas, but then they wouldn't, the ideas wouldn't work a lot of the times. So this is one of the, this is one of the times when the ideas didn't work. We had just moved into this house and everything was going great. And then around 11 o'clock at night, I remember being woken up out of bed and like just this loud rumbling like outside of our house. I'm like, whoa, what is that? And I came out, opened my door, my sister's at her door. And then like, I heard this banging on, banging on our front door. And like, I looked down the stairs, it was a two-story house. And I remember looking down the stairs and like, my dad's looking out there and he opens the door up a crack. And this guy was like, I'm going to fucking kill you, George. My dad's name was George. He's I'm going to fucking kill you and your goddamn family. And I remember like, oh. Like my eyes like this big, I'm sitting at the stairs, you know, and like I see my dad trying to hold this door back and this guy jams a gun through the crack of the door. I'm going to kill your fucking family. Sorry for cussing so much, but this is like a tragic moment right here. And like, life, yeah, yeah. And like my mom, like she comes running from the kitchen and she's crying. My dad's like, call 911, Jennifer. And I remember like my dad, like looking up the stairs in like this voice or like this, this, 
the look he had on his face was like a a calm panic for lack of a better term like he wanted to be consoling and try to tell us it was okay and he says to us in the super calm voice george desiree i want you to get in your closet you know and um and so uh we do we go we hide in the closet and i hear this banging on the door and um you know it's it, it eventually the guy leaves but I, i'll never forget like we jump in the closet and I remember just being super scared and like holding my sister and being like, Oh my God, we're going to die. We didn't die. And the guy left, but you know, and I bring up that particular story because it, it, it shaped, it began to shape my understanding of the world. Like I, my understanding of the world was like all or nothing. Like either we have everything or we have nothing. And that cycle happened a lot in my life. Like it happened every year. And it was, we are the greatest, we're, we're, we have nothing. We would, like I said, we moved 17 times. I got so good at moving. And I also began to understand, you know, you, you don't know your parents are different or you don't know that you're different or your life is different. You just understand the worldview in which you're brought up in. And so for me, you know, I would listen to my dad's stories about, listen, man, we're going to be going to Gibraltar pretty soon for a ribbon cutting ceremony. I've just started this new partnership with this guy, Ben, and, um, and just these incredibly elaborate stories that were magical. And I was just every single detail. My dad was one of the most, he still is. I love that guy. He's one of the most charming people in the world. And when you sit down and you talk to him, you can feel the incredible vibe that comes from being around him. It's intoxicating and it's contagious. And then on the other side of it, there's this, there's this incredible sorrowness that comes from unrealized dreams and potential. And I saw that in my family. Like I saw the, my mom being drawn, this charismatic individual and all these dreams and all of her dreams coming true. And then having to deal with the crushing defeat of them never coming true or not coming true to the level she thought they would come true. And so when I grew up, I, I saw this relationship and I saw the growing resentment that began to happen between them. I saw the resentment between my father wanting all these things to be true and working on them and my mother wanting to believe they're true. But then they, they, things didn't materialize the way they wanted to. And, and it, the relationship just grew apart. You know, the resentment happened. And, and for a long time, I blamed my dad for that. And... As I got older, I learned that it, it, it's just a relationship. It's life. And um, that's where I kind of turned to spirituality. Like my second foray into spirituality from living in this magical yard where I saw these things happen. And the second part of spirituality for me was my Auntie Jane that I spent a lot of time with. And she would always talk about angels and talk about kind of crossing over. And that was a different kind of life for me. That I would spend a lot of time there. They were a product of the 50s. Uncle Bruce would get, get up and go to work and he worked at the gas company and he had worked there for like 40 years and Annie Jane was a stay-at-home mom. And that, that was the most stability that I have ever had in my life. So when things got crazy at my house, like they did often, I would go live with my Annie Jane and Uncle Bruce for a week or two weeks or a month at a time. And so it was this real interesting interplay between a bipolar relationship and a stable relationship. 
And like, that's where the spirituality kind of came in is when I would, I would see like, there's so much out there. Like there has to be a bigger force at work. Like some people have these incredible inspirations and they're inspired by a godlike figure and they can create a reality for other people to live in. My dad would do that. He would create realities for other people to live in. But then I would go live with my Annie Jane and Uncle Bruce and they lived in this other reality where Uncle Bruce got up and he would go to work every day and Jane would stay home. And so for me, between these two realities, Clint, like I, I, I began to form my worldview. And it was in some ways a limited worldview that if you want to make sense in the world, you have to get up and you go to work every day. And here's these kind of preset boxes. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be a worker. You know, and I really had this narrow definition of what was possible in life. And, um, I carried that definition. I think so much of our understanding in life comes from the families in which we were raised. You know, depending on where you're born usually determines what religion you are. If you're born in Saudi Arabia, you're probably going to be a Muslim. If you're born in where I was born, you're probably going to be a Christian. You know, if you're born in Japan somewhere, maybe you're the Buddhist faith or something like that. But our, you know, we, I, I don't it's imperative for people to understand your worldview depends on the geography in which you're born at and stuff. And I think a lot of us talking to you and some of the people on a podcast, a lot of us that were born into the Western world were born into this sort of caste system, this Christian caste system, I call it. And like, I love, I love Jesus and I love the idea of religion and I love the idea of God and this giant power that, can be infectious and it can be contagious and it can guide us and it can be a light and we can talk to it and it's all around us. I love that idea, but but I I felt in the beginning of my life that my relationship with spirituality and religion, my relationship with religion was more of a box than my relationship with spirituality, man. So I guess that that is a very large swath of my first experiences of coming into this world and how I began to see religion and spirituality for a moment, man. Thanks for letting me okay. share that. Well, I, th I think that story you shared is, it kind of gives a comprehensive visual of like your early yeah. life. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, and I see, you know, a lot of overlap, not with my own life in that regard, but with a lot of my family members, you know? Yeah. I'd say my dad probably had a more similar life to you, you know, new house every year because they would fail to make the rent. They would get yeah. kicked out. And then, yep. and then there would be this, this new, like uh, maybe a windfall, uh, yep. a new job or something would come along and then the family would be, you know, on top for a few moments and then, yeah. you know, have to go through that whole thing again. And, you know, one thing I'm eternally grateful for my father for is that having experienced that himself for better or worse, he tried to eliminate that, that volatility, you know, from our lives. And so for me, I was able to experience this very static, very comfortable, very like, I mean, as funny as a child, you know, I didn't, I didn't recognize it. I didn't know how blessed yeah. I was, you know, to exist in this, you know, rural American nest of like yeah. blessing and comfort, you know, and it, it took me many, many years to, to kind of understand the trials that many children have to endure completely unprepared. You know, no one, no one gave you a rule book, George, well, like how to navigate 
the you know ups and downs of family life. You, you're just a kid is like like on a raft in an ocean. Yes, you know, in those kind of circumstances, and and they're just like clinging to like whatever is solid in, mm -hmm. you know, in their life. And was there was there like other than your aunt, you know, having her kind of. Uh, spiritual understanding of angels and things like that was there an overall religious context or was there any like local you know spiritual leader that you had any relationship with or anything like that hmm there was my neighbor mr kelly you know mr kelly was they were really they were really awesome people i remember coming home from school sometimes and going and knocking on their door and being like hey my parents aren't home can I um can I stay here for a little bit? And he'd be like, Yeah, of course. And I would come in there and I would sit at the kitchen table and make me hot chocolate. And you know, I, I look at them as almost a religious savior in a way because you know, all of us that grew up, most generational Xers were latchkey kids. And so my parents would be working and I would come home and like I sometimes I'll forget where I put the key at. You know what I mean? I'd be coming up like second grade, like I don't know where the key is. I don't know how to get in the house. And like there was no phones. So he's go to your neighbor's house. And like, you know, it's I think of him as a religious figure sometimes because I think of the idea of a neighbor, someone being there to help you. They just pop up. Like he, it was magical. Like I just go to this guy's house. He'll help me. Like that's a miracle for a, for a child. And then you go in there and they give you some hot chocolate, maybe an ice cream sandwich. They ask you how your day is. You know, to me, it was like, whoa, I'm going to go to Mr. Kelly's house. You know, and that gentleman and his family, like they would open their door every time I went over there. And so, like, I think it brings back my idea to faith in the world. Like, even though I was on this raft in an ocean of chaos, there was this sort of power surrounding me, literally, like my neighbor. Like, and if you read scripture, you can understand the power of being a good neighbor. Like, I felt as if there was a bigger picture teaching me lessons. Like, yep, you know what, George? And I think, like... I, so many people have so many stories about being a kid and you, you were right. Like you can't control what happens to you. But when looking back, you realize that there's forces that are guiding you. Like, yes, you're, you're going to have this particular test, George, but I, as a greater power, call it Jesus, God, Akua, Buddha, whatever you want to name this incredible power that's looking out for us. It's guiding us. It's testing us. It's there. And I saw it like, here's my neighbor. And he's going to help provide for me when I'm afraid. I'm a child. I'm helpless. I can go talk to my neighbor. Like that is God to me. That is a power. That is that is morality. That is a higher power looking out for you. And I, I wanted to touch back on something you said too about this idea, this metaphor of a life raft and those relationships we grow up in. The way my dad, the same way your dad provided you stability in in responding to the way he was born. My father was also responding to the way that he was born. Like he didn't want to have this life where, where they had so little. So he created a way in which they can have a, we could have abundance. And there was times we did have abundance. And so when I look back, I don't blame my dad for his actions. Like I see it as a generational turn. Like Wow, my dad is responding to 25 years of his conditioning. And his dad was responding to 25 years of his conditioning. And as I look back now, I'm like, all of these have accumulated into who I am today. Like I've got my grandfather's conditioning. I have my dad's conditioning, you know, and, and now it's my turn. All those things that happened to me as a kid 
were gifts because I learned how to respond to life in a unique way. You know, th there was another time, like you said, your father grew up and they were moved out of houses. I remember coming home from that same house where Mr. Kelly was my neighbor and there were cops at the door and the cops were like, hello, son. Um, we're here with your parents. You guys have an hour to get everything that you need out of this house. And then you're going to have to leave. And I remember, mom, where are we going to go? And she's like, we'll go to Annie Jane's house. I'm like, how come we have an, only have an hour to get our stuff? We have a lot of stuff. And she's like, George, don't, I can't answer a lot of questions right now. Just go into your room and get the things that you love the most. Okay. And like, we hadn't paid rent in like four months. You know, <laughs> so we were getting kicked out of there. But like, when I look back on that, as, as touching as that story could be, and I don't, I'm, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I, I'm just saying that story because it happens to a lot of people. There's real gems you can take out of there. A lot of people, especially right now. And I think maybe that's one reason we're talking today is I get a chance to tell this story. And if you are a dad and this shit's happening to you, look, at, look man, shit's tough. I get it. But I want to tell you something beautiful that came out of that. Like I learned that all this shit you accumulate, kind of meaningless. It's nice to have and it makes you feel good. And you'd be like, that's a first edition book, man. Yeah, but who cares? Who cares if your parents are together and they love you? If you have a roof over your head and food in your fridge and your freedom, you got everything, man. You got everything. So if you find yourself in a position where cops are knocking at your door telling you to get out of your house, okay, life's, life's teaching you a lesson right now. And your kids will learn. They may not know right now, but I guarantee you one day they will look back on that and find a real gem because I know I did. And it's helped me. It's served me. And in the times where these tragedies happen to us, Clint, like we can feel pain, we can feel sorrow, we can feel like there's nowhere to go and we can cry for a little bit. But once you do that, once you get past the sorrow, you can see the light. Sometimes we can't see the light because we're crying and our eyes are shut and we're, you know, there's tears. But once you open your eyes again, Maybe you can see more clearly. Have people ever noticed that once you stop crying and you open your eyes and you can see more clearly? There's gifts there. There's real lessons there. And the more tragic the event in your life, the bigger the gift. And I know that's hard for people to understand. But when I look back on my life, I'm thankful that it was tragic. I'm thankful that it was so tumultuous because I learned what's important in my life. And it wasn't easy. And it isn't easy for anybody. Everybody's got tragedy in their life. But these things that happen to you are a real gift if you take the time to understand what you've learned, man. And so I wanted to go back and say that because I want people that are going through tough times right now to understand later in life, these will be the stairs that you use to climb into a better world and a better life and a better place for your family, man. So thanks for letting me share that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It builds It builds resilience. You know, in the moment, none of us would welcome these kind of difficulties. You know, no one yeah. is like, no one's out there searching, you know, how to make my life harder and, <laughs> and I'm more unstable, you know, but it's like, if you experience that, yeah, it's going to give you courage and yep. endurance when the, I mean, those things will come again. They I, will. Very few of us live a life of just peaceful mediocrity and and those who do hell i feel sorry for them man me too like me too that must be miserable right to just be like groundhog day every day like yeah. I mean, 
that'd be terrible. I, I wish I had the, you know, the chapter and verse at my fingertips, but you know, the apostle Paul tells us, I know what it is to both be abased and to abound. That's to so beautiful. Experience, <laughs> to experience the lowest and the highest. Again, those are tumultuous times sometimes, you know, because sometimes at our highest times, there's a certain level of, of instability there too. You know, it's like, cause you're, you're kind yeah. of overwhelmed with the beauty and awe and the magnificence of it. And then at the bottom, you're, you're scrambling in this hapless, uh, desperate way to try to get back to a sense of either normalcy or awe again, you know? Um, so learning to ride those waves is what it means to learn to navigate the human life. Right. I mean, if we, if we don't, if we're never challenged, if we're never, if we've never had to fight for something, if it's always just been given to us on a platter that sets us up for a lot of disappointment that, that we might not really be, have the fortitude to navigate. So, so yeah, these, these, these trials in our lives, especially as children, I think, although they can sometimes kind of set us on a traumatic trajectory, mm -hmm. if, if if we're able to integrate them properly, they just give us courage and fortitude to navigate the future challenges that come before us. So it sounds like you were prepped and integrated to face challenges that, that you intersected with in, in the rest of your life. So like, how did... Once, once you kind of left childhood and began to become kind of your own person, I don't know, for, for a lot of us, that's probably somewhere between the ages of like 12 and 16. Yeah. And you know, we begin to like view ourselves as an individual. Yeah. And less of a, like a quote unquote kid. Like right. how, did, how did, how did life shape up at that point? And what, what kind of interest did you have? I mean, you said something earlier, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but you said something about not realizing how many options there were. You know, when I was a kid, I thought yeah. you could be like a doctor, a yeah. preacher, a trash man, or a school teacher. Like, I didn't know how many jobs there were. Like, no one told me you could be, a, you know, an advertising executive or a, you know, so, like there are so many amazing careers out there that a that a person's aptitude and their, their, yeah. their you know, their, their passions could lead them to, but it's like, none of that, for whatever reason, none of that was presented to me as options. It was like, you're going to look, work at the local factory. Yep. You're going to go to college and be a doctor or a teacher like that. I didn't. <laughs> so like at that point, like, how did you view the future? Like, what is George going to grow up and be? Uh, you know, it's so funny that like, I remember like later in life being so offended that like, no one told me there was an option where I could retire at 30. Damn it. Nobody told me that. I didn't know you could do that. If I would have known that, I would have tried to do that. You know, <laughs> no one told me. And I, I, I just want to go back for a minute real briefly, because when we were talking about everything that happened in childhood, like I, on some level, I think the more traumatic your childhood, the more meaningful spirituality is to you because you find it you find meaning in things when you're little and you you these events happen to you you ask why why is this happening and, and you realize real quick adults don't have the answer mom why is this happening i don't know george 
dad, why is this going on? I don't know. You know, and you all of a sudden, in some ways, I think that the traumatic events that happen to a child are because God loves them. And I know that's a dangerous thing to say. And I don't mean tragic events that like, I'll just leave it there. Like when you're a child and tragic events happen to you, it's because the world loves you. And I know that that sounds crazy, but just if you, if you're a child and some weird shit happened to you and you're older now, think about that. For me, there was a quote from the Bible that I clung to. And I still to this day is like, I was born with a mess and I was born with a thorn in my side, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I prayed to the Lord to take it away from me. And in his infinite wisdom, I heard my grace is sufficient for you for in weakness, my power is made perfect. And to this day, when I say that, man, like I have all these memories, but I totally get goosebumps because in weakness, his power is made perfect. Like just think about the magnitude of that. Like that's why we love the story of the underdog because in weakness, the power is made perfect. In tragedy, these things that happen to you, good. Because it's not because those things that happen to you, it's in spite of those things that will happen to you. Like it gives you the power to overcome. And so I, I, I took that with me to my to a little bit of my older age in school. And we were talking about these options that were never given to us. A lot of us ended up going were at public schools. And then I think there's a lot of really cool public school teachers. And there's a lot of great things that happen in public schools. And and I think that now times are different. But back when, when we were going to school, it seems to me, and this is just my experience, that you know, we were being trained to be obedient workers, Clint. And that's why there was only so many options open for you. The world didn't need poets, the, the, especially the United States coming out of World War II. They didn't need they didn't need big thinkers. They didn't need artists. They needed people to work in factories. And so that's why you were trained by an authoritarian figure like a Pavlovian dog. And for those that don't know Pavlov, that was this Russian guy who trained dogs with a whistle. And he would blow this whistle, and then he would give the dogs food. He would blow the whistle, give the dogs food. Blow the, do blow the whistle, and then give the dogs food. And pretty soon... He wouldn't even need like he wouldn't even need to give the dogs food. He would just blow the whistle and the dogs would salivate because they knew they were going to get food. And it's that sort of conditioning response that was done to a generation of children. We are going to condition you to be obedient workers. You don't need to question authority. You need to do what you're told. And this system came from the Prussian system. And so that's what happened for a lot of us, whether you're in Arkansas, whether you were in California, whether you're in Kentucky, whether you were in Idaho, we were all conditioned to be obedient workers. Not all of us, but a large swath of us were conditioned to be these obedient workers and we weren't given the options. And so now when you and I look back at it, we're like, son of a gun. And not only were we conditioned this way, there was there was one form of it. Like I, I had a learning disability where like I'm a neurodivergent thinker and I probably have the same sort of mentality as my father on some level. Like I just see the world differently, but the schools aren't set up for people to see the world differently. Like I hated the, this train, one train leaves Birmingham at 167 miles an hour. Another train leaves Florida at 72 miles an hour. Who cares? Like I couldn't figure that out. And it was the way the, the problem was worded. And I'm like, Okay, why is why is that train leaving and what is it hauling? And my teacher would be like, that doesn't matter. I'm like, it matters to me. I'm like, wait, if it's if it's got a heavy load, isn't it gonna go slower? And the teacher would be like, George, why are you being so difficult? And I'm like, I'm I'm trying to understand the problem. 
And like those kind of conversations would happen. And my parents would be like, George, uh, you know, you, you just got to answer their questions. You shouldn't ask more questions. And I'm like, well, I, I think that this is a, like, I don't understand. And so I'll, in school at this age, I would start getting bad grades and bad marks. And it left a mark on me. Like I thought I was dumb. And like, I became the class clown. I graduated class clown. I, I started going to school. I love people. I love playing. I love doing stuff. But I didn't understand the way teachers were teaching. And that made it very difficult for me to learn. But what I learned is that I could make people laugh. And that made me feel terrific. So I would say, I would start saying these things out loud. The teacher would be like, the train leaves there. I'm like, what kind of, what is the train hauling? You know, and people start laughing. Yeah, that's pretty funny. You know, so I, I got this little bit of dopamine from being joking and, and, and in some ways being insightful. And so I was encouraged to be insightful, even though it landed me in the principal's office, it landed me getting beat up sometimes. Like it still was much more rewarding because no one ever came to me and was like, you know what? You're right. What is that train hauling? We should figure this out. Like no one ever did that. And it wasn't the teacher's fault. I was a I was a student that was asking questions and stopping the rest of the class from learning. So when I look back on it, it was a huge part of of who I am. And I think a lot of people that find themselves, if you have kids that are the class clown, or if you have kids that might be in class and not getting good marks, maybe ask them why. Your kid's not dumb. Your kid thinks in a different way. And that should be celebrated on some level. Like figure out what it is. Like what can we learn from the kids that think different? Like maybe those are the kids that can teach us something. You know, maybe those are the kids that can help out the other kids and everybody could benefit from that. Like what if a classroom was structured where the kids are asking each other, how do you see this? How do you see that? And now all of a sudden these kids are instead of competing with each other, they are finding ways to sit down and learn from each other. And the teacher plays more of a facilitation role in having dialogues and figuring out this. And it's almost, you could take it back to the apostles. Maybe the, the teacher becomes a figure that is sort of, having these people around them and helping them understand instead of dictating to them like a Pavlovian authoritarian figure, man. So for me, the growing up, I, I, I was, I was trying to find ways. I hated the conditioning and it made me feel small and it made me feel like I was less than what I could be. And, and I absorbed it, man. I, I, I took it in full circle. Like the teacher told me, look, you know, you're not scoring very high on these aptitude tests. You're going to be one of these things. You're going to be, you can be one of these. And, you know, how horrible is it for an adult to give a label to a child? Here's what you can be. Fuck you. You're going to shut off my whole world because you think something? How dare you? How dare you tell a child what they are? Who are you to tell a kid what they are? You don't know. You don't know their family. You don't know the trials they've been through. Who are you to tell a child what they can be? You know, and I, I get a little, sorry, I'm getting a little heated right now because I can see the counselor telling me what I can be, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I want other kids to understand that and parents of kids to understand this just because somebody puts a label on you. Man, those are just words. They're like that train that's not hauling anything, man. It's empty. <laughs> it's empty. It doesn't matter. You get to decide what the label is. And so growing up through school, I got bad, I got fair marks and I tried really hard. And I remember, I remember, things starting to hit me too. I remember being in this class. I, I was in a, in a, I had, I really liked history and I had made it to like this in high school in my, my sophomore year, I was in like this accelerated history class. It was the only class where I was with the smart kids apparently. And the teacher says, you know, I, I'm just curious here. How many people in here come from a family um, where the parents are divorced? I raised my hand and I just figured everyone raised their hand. I was the only kid in that class that raised my hand. 
And then it kind of dawned on me. Like, that was the first time, Cliff, that it kind of dawned on me. I looked around and it was like one of those moments where time stopped. And I was like, hand in the air. And I felt like everybody was staring at me and I was staring at everybody. I'm like, oh, whoa. My parents' relationship has an incredible effect on how I learn. You know, and it hit me like that. Like it was just this revelation. Like it was revealed to me like, wow. And then you started thinking like, man, they're both doing stuff. They're kind of unhappy. You know, when I go home and do homework, there's no one there. I bet you these kids have parents at home to help them with their homework. You know what I mean? And like, it makes me want to cry a little bit. Like, but sometimes we get so caught up in our own world and our own tragedies. And I'm not saying that those tragedies in our life don't deserve our full attitude, but your kid needs help with homework. And it's really hard to do that when you're working as a UPS driver, like I was for 15 hours a day trying to make a living, you know, it's, and it's weird how these patterns repeat, man. Like I repeated some of these same patterns, but as I'll bring it back to the idea that that's where I was in school. I was a wrestler. Um, I became a wrestler because in, in elementary school, here's a, here's another classic story about growing up in middle school because I was, or not middle school, in elementary school, I was the class clown and I, I would see things different and I would try to make people laugh, but I would get beat up sometimes. And there was this kid, Paul Arandondo, who became a good friend of mine. We were playing soccer one time out on the recess. And I said something real smart to him, just, you know, just trying to like point out something, trying to make him feel dumb because I felt dumb. And he came over to me and he punched me right in the face and I fell down and he picked me up and threw me on the ground, beat the, beat the crap out of me. And we were both sitting in the principal's office because we had to go to the principal's office. And, uh, you know, we, we called in there one by one. What are you boys fighting for? Ah, Paul, this guy said something mean to me. Ah, you made me feel dumb, whatever. And then my dad had to come pick me up and I got the referral and my dad comes, picks me up halfway through school. I get in the truck and he's like, what happened? I'm like, I got in a fight, dad. My dad said, did you win? No, dad, I didn't win. And that was it until we got home. And then we, my, um, then my mom comes home and she goes, George, what happened? I go, I got in a fight, mom. She goes, well, why? And I go, because this kid was making me feel bad. So then I started telling him all the things that was dumb about him. And then everybody started laughing. And then he punched me in the face. <laughs> my mom goes, you know what, George? You're younger than every kid in your class. And your dad's not a very tall guy. And you're not going to be a very tall guy either. So you, George, you need to learn how to use your words and your language to not get in physical fights. Because from this point forward, because there's no doubt in my mind, you're a smart little boy and you're really good with your words and you see things different. So you need to learn how to use that to never be beaten up again. And if you get beaten up again, it's because you didn't do that. So do that more. You know, and so that, that was a valuable lesson from my mom. Hey, you got to outthink people. Yeah, that was so, pretty insightful, actually. I mean, she was, really she was looking insightful. at what your your gifts were and saying, here's how you use your gifts to navigate the world, you know? Yeah, and and, and that is the a woman's intuition. You know, a mother to her child, through, I think, has a gift of understanding what her children's gifts are. A mother sees a child in a way that no one else can. And the relationship between a mother and a son, especially, is a magical one. I love my mom in a lot of ways. And you know, I, I never forget, I can almost picture what she was wearing and I'll never forget that advice. And I've taken that advice to heart and I'm so thankful that she pointed that out to me. You know, it's, thank you for, for seeing that. You're right. It's true. And my- I also noticed the difference yeah. in the questions. The dad's like, did you win? <laughs> yeah, mom didn't, totally. Mom didn't care if you won. She would, yeah. like, if you'd said, yeah, I, kicked, I smoked him, you know, she, she would have been like, 
Well, let's let's talk about your future, George. Let's not talk yeah. about you know, your dad would have been like, yeah, that's my boy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's it's interesting to think that. My, and so my dad came back later and was like, look, you're going to learn to wrestle. So he took me to like wrestling practice. And from that point forward, I, I learned how to wrestle. And I think that I think for young men or young women growing up, sports can play a crucial part in identity. And for me as a wrestler, as a young kid, I, I, um, you know, I got the first two years, I don't think I won a match. Every weekend we go to different towns and go to different wrestling tournaments. And I would just get smoked left and right. And I'll go out on the mat and I'll cry and I don't want to do it. My dad would be like, look, man, you can go out there and cry all you want, but you're going to go out on the mat. And so I, you know, the first year I'd go out, wrestle four times and just get smoked, get smoked, get smoked. And then my dad's like, man, are you getting tired of losing? Why don't you try? You're not even trying. You're just going out there and laying down. You're better than that. Get out there and try. You know, and so finally I, I tried one time and I got better. And the first time I pinned somebody, that guy cried. And that was like a, a, sh a momentous shift. Like I didn't want to make him cry, but I got to lie. Like it made me feel pretty good to make him cry. And that's a weird thing for a kid to, to feel. Like, why do I feel good when I'm punishing this kid? You know, like those are weird things to think about for a, guy, a kid that's, you know, 10 or 11. You're like, why, why do I feel like that? And like my dad wanted me to have the killer instinct. He's like, doesn't that feel good? And I'm like, mm, not really. Kind of like I feel powerful, but like I don't really enjoy it. <laughs> my dad wanted me to have that killer instinct. And so I continued to wrestle for a long time. But, the, you know, I, like my mom said, like she said, you know, you got to use your words. And so for kids growing up and for me growing up, these were some really – momentous events in my life, like getting beat up and understanding how that feels and then becoming the person in a sanctioned event that could be beat people up. Like I still remember how it felt when I got punched in the face and here I am trying to choke this kid out with a head and arm. You know, like it's, it's interesting to look back on that and be like, man, I was in some ways, I went from being the guy that got punched in the face to be in the guy that punched people in the face and neither one are satisfying. There's gotta be something else there, you know? So yeah, man, but that's a great insight. Like I, I, I don't know. Those are two momentous points that growing up, man, I really appreciate you. I feel like I'm rambling. Sometimes I appreciate you giving me the oh, format man, to, to just, talk about this, I, man. Thank you, man. While you're talking, my mind is just going because I've, I've had so many, you know, similar experiences, you know, let's I hear about one. Well, like, kind of being typecast as like the dunce. I mean, cause I was a pretty smart kid, but like yeah. you, now I didn't choose the class clown route. I just <laughs> right. early on, I just checked out, man. Okay. At about 10 years old, I just checked out. I had some really bad grade one semester and my dad came up to meet with the teacher and she, the teacher was kind of at her wits end. She was like, I don't know. She's like, he just doesn't, mm -hmm. He's not trying hard enough or something. You know, my dad, he always struggled. He had some learning issues and yep. he didn't, he didn't want us to be handicapped by those learning issues the way he was. He was, so he was trying to be, he was trying to get ahead of that and like do whatever he could to make sure that he dealt with whatever my issue was. But like, I, there was no way to identify it because it wasn't an issue with my ability to learn. It was an issue with my, I guess, a ability to tolerate being in a system. Uh, it didn't seem to value people. Now I couldn't articulate that then. All I could do was say, I don't care. Um, right. to which my dad said, well, in 
till you care, you'll be grounded, you know? And so, so, <laughs> so I spent the next like eight years of my life grounded because I just didn't care, you know? I, and, and so at some point I agreed with them. I remember going to the ninth grade. I went up a week before school started and we got our schedules for the next year. And we had to like choose classes and what, you know, route we wanted to take academically and, the school counselor, I'm sure she meant well, but she was sure. looking at my options and there were options of taking higher math or like this really low level kind of like remedial math. And she pushed me really, really hard to take that low level class. You know, she was like, you're not really prepared for this. You know, you need to take this. And and so at that point, I think I kind of adopted like, of course, I'm stupid. Like, I, I don't I'm not I'm too I'm not smart like these other people. See, I was probably 14 or 15 then. I mean, it was, I was like 19, 20 years old, 21 before I questioned that. Yeah. And I thought, maybe I'm not stupid. Maybe this whole system I was in was just bogus. You know, it's like, maybe it, it didn't really, and I don't, I don't want to go on a tangent on the education yeah. system. I, th I think we've at least dipped our toe in that water already it wasn't made to serve a person like you or I, you know, divergent yep. thinkers. Yep. And so I don't know though, all those teachers and people probably did the best they could for me because I, I was checked out, man. Like I was not, I was not going to waste my time and energy trying to score points on their scoreboard. I was like, I'll just, I'll just survive this. So I just kind of said, I'm just going to be on the D honor roll. For the next few years until I get yep. out of here and then I'll make a life for myself. But yep. what I didn't realize is I wasn't playing the game. And so then I kind of fell into their, their categories, man. And I noticed this when my son, my oldest went to a, a private school here in town mm -hmm. up until he was in the sixth grade. And when he was in the sixth grade, they took him to the local public schools to kind of explain to them, how that transition is going to be and what kind of classes they'll be taking. And then they told them they need to choose what track they're going on. Do they want to go on the, I don't remember what they called it, okay. uh, the dunce track, or do you want to be on the college prep track? And so from the time a kid is seventh grade, yeah. so like 12 years old, you're deciding where they're going to end up five years, ten, six years later. That doesn't make any sense to me. So like, yeah. like if you chose one track, you would basically be heaped in with all the dumb and neurodivergent students. And if you chose the college track, then you would be in the classes with all the people who, whose parents were still married, you know, or had, or had <laughs> more just, resources, you right. know? And so uh, both that point you made was, it was really bold <laughs> because, you know, so often we get aggravated, especially a hardworking person, a person like yes. you or I, who's made a yeah. life for themselves by yep. working hard. We look at people who don't work hard or who don't have anything, and we assume they don't work hard. But like the failure that those of us who had the benefit of, of either ha being birthed with a work ethic or being given parents who had yep. means, yep. what we don't understand is people start this race at different points on the track. So like if both your parents are married and they're 
they're both college educated and they're both they both have a very sincere religious practice. Yep. Like, man, you get to start like halfway around the track, you know, but you don't <laughs> yeah. even know that. You don't even right. know that. You know, you just think, well, I worked as hard as that guy. What's wrong with him? You're like, yeah, that guy grew up in a, like a low rent apartment with, uh, you know, guys yeah. beating on the door saying they're going to kick his dad's ass. Yeah. You know, it's like in the middle of the night, like, that's a harder place to get started from, you know? And so a, a lot of that that you said makes a whole lot of sense to me. And I wish, you know, we had more time to delve into all that today, but yeah. Yeah. yeah all it, that really makes a lot of sense to me. A lot of us, I think, I think a lot of us have that same sort of, of upbringing where, especially my audience and your audience, like I, I feel that, and so many people around the world have felt this, like, and I think it shines a light on the leadership we have today. Like, what does it mean when someone who was born on third base tells everybody they hit a triple? This guy becomes the executive. This guy becomes the leader. But that guy's soft, man. That girl is soft. You ain't had challenges. You don't know what adversity is. And that's why you see these uprisings all over the world, be it the Arab Spring, be it the United Auto Workers, the UPS Strikers. The people on the bottom are tough, and the people on the top are getting soft because it's it's like Billy Madison. Remember that movie Billy Madison where like the dad has to decide, hey, man, you're going to give the job to this executive that's a shark or you're going to give it to your kid? He gives it to his kid. And while the message of that movie is different, that's what's happened in life. Maybe someone starts out and they build a company and they, they crush it. But then they, they make their, because they love their kid, they make their kid's life as easy as possible because they love them and they want it to be stable and they want to have the best life. But in doing so, they didn't get the Clint Kyle experience, the George Monty experience, all the adversity. And when you don't have adversity, when you grow up in a sanitized environment, you don't thoroughly understand what it's like to feel the pressure of the world weighing down on you. And that that's when the people on the bottom start going, they start laughing. Oh, I'm so sorry. You can't go to Harvard this year, you big baby. Oh, no, the daddy's paycheck not come through for you. You know, like we find this sort of schadenfreude and they're like, oh, darn, darn, darn. It's the big world treating you bad now. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Welcome to the best of us, you know, like, but th I think that that's what's happening. Like I, way too many of our leaders have been given the position. The idea of authority has gone from the person who deserves it to the person who was given to it. And whenever that's happened, you see revolutions. You see the bottom coming up and eating the top guy's lunch. You see people walking away from jobs. You see people like us being like, you know what? I'm not gonna take this anymore. This guy ahead of me is a dummy. And I don't mean that he went to school and is a neurodivergent person or checked out. I mean that this guy was told he was awesome and he's really a dummy and I can prove it to him. And when you prove it to him, they don't like that. So I think that's kind of in some ways what we're talking about. This education system is coming back and eating itself. Like, all the people that realized early on in school that this is bullshit, they went and found another way. It was hard, but they figured it out. Okay, I am just going to sit here and do this, and apparently I'm supposed to be on this low track, even though I think I'm, you know, you don't figure out that maybe you are the smart one. The other people they told were dumb, maybe they were the smart ones. You know, and there's a, there's a pretty interesting quote that I hear that says, C's get degrees. Like, what does it mean, Clint, when someone goes to school for 25 years? Like, is that smart? 
You're going to let someone sit in front of you and tell you for 25 years what to think, how to think, what something is? Or are you going to check out at grade 12 or grade nine? And be like, I think I got this thing figured out, man. You know, who's the smart one, man? Like, it's interesting to think about. You know, like one of my favorite ideas is when you when you watch um, The Godfather, you know, Fredo had a college degree, but Michael was the boss. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Yeah, and those in those families in those movies, they would almost choose. It was almost like the opposite. They would choose the person who, well, kind of like your mom. They'd be like, "This this kid has the gift for law or whatever," right? And they just, okay, you're the one. You're going to college. You're going to do all the yeah. things, and then you're going to come back and provide that that opportunity for the family by going and getting your knowledge. Yeah. yeah yeah, I think we fail young people. We fail to some in some way. We fail to take inventory of their gifts and passions, and give them a set of options where they can optimize those gifts. And yep. instead, we try to program them. We're yep. like, yeah, let's get rid of your, let's clean your hard drive and give you like this kind of stock model where yep. you'll just You'll just plug in at the local, you know, whatever, uh, factory or car wash or whatever. And so, I mean, that's what I did. Uh, yeah. I got out of school. All of us. I, I knew I wasn't going to college because I didn't want to sit in any more classrooms and listen to some, uh, you know, jackass in a tweed jacket tell me what to think. So I didn't know what else to do. So I just, I got a blue collar job. I, I guess that's what you did. Is that how you got in the trucking? Yeah. Yeah. For me, you know, when I, when I, like I said, I grew up on a truck yard and the only male role model, and I don't know if this is magic or tragic, you know, but the only male role model I had around me that had a stable life was my uncle Bruce. And he worked at the, his dad worked at the gas company and he worked at the gas company. When he, I think he made, when he started the gas company, let's tell you how old I am. And, and they were older when I moved in with him. But when he started the gas company, he was making like 15 cents an hour. Like that's how long ago. And he lived like, he worked there for 40 years. So then I was like, okay. And this gets us back to the idea of you and I being programmed and the options that we see. Okay, if I want to live, who are my options? Am I, am I going to live being kicked out of houses? Or am I going to live like my aunt and uncle have a stable life? Well, what does Uncle Bruce do? Uncle Bruce goes to work. So all I wanted to do was find a place where I could get a paycheck and live a stable life. Like on some level, when you limit kids with labels, you limit their imagination and you limit what they're capable of. Even though that child, man, woman, boy or girl, has infinite wisdom, is a genius, and they could be so much, by putting them in this box, we limit what they can be. And in doing so, we we limit the disruption in society. And I think that's a part of it. So yeah, I, I became a truck driver at uh, 18. In high school, I, I did the whole work experience. I was a I worked at a pizza place and discount tire. And um, you know, you start getting some money coming in as a kid, things start going pretty getting a little bit better for you. And you know, I grew up in California, in Southern California. And so I learned quickly that if you want to have a girlfriend, you better have some money. And it seemed to me that like all the older boys that had really pretty girlfriends were guys that were living on their own, that were guys that were out trying to do stuff. And so 
okay, well, that's what I want. I want to have a really pretty girlfriend that loves me and wants to be around me and like in a, in a nice car and a, in a place to live. Like these are things I wanted. So, well, the only way you do that is you got to get a job. So I had two jobs in high school. And then, then I got a, then I, I took a little brief exit. When I moved down to Mexico for about six months and worked at a surf camp down there. It was an amazing experience. I got to go to Mexico and surf for a long time. And it really kind of gave me a different aspect on life. You know, you, it was my first time kind of going to a, a, it was, it was pretty deep in Baja, California. It was like four hours South of Ensenada for those who are who are familiar with the area. And, um, there was nothing down there, man. There was this old shipwreck and there was this small little village of like eight houses and they had goats and a well. And then, you know, we had a, a small little campground where people would come down and surf. And for me, it was, I, I probably romanticize it now, but it, it just seemed like nothing I had ever been around before. And it was, it had changed my life in a lot of ways. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. You just live off the land and surf and you know, and, and it was this weird mix of like, of, of old and new, you know, there was this old shipwreck that had crashed right there. And there was a sick ride that you could just surf for like, it was in this big bay and you could just get like 15 turns on this wave. And my boss, Bill at the time, he, he had these really cool brochures for like a surf camp and he would bring in people from all over the world, like New York, Australia, you know, Japan, and he would charge them like seven grand a week. And on the flyer, it's like gourmet food, amazing accommodations. But the accommodations were not that amazing. And I was the chef. So the gourmet food just wasn't there, you know. But then I, I got to see what he was doing. I'm like, dude, this guy is bringing in five people at seven grand a pop for a week. That's 35 grand. And this guy's crushing. And like, I'm looking around and I'm like, dude, these places are just like little shanties. But you know what? Like he would have the local guys in that little village come down and build like cinder block houses. So those guys were getting paid. He'd bring people in. He was getting paid. And I was like, wow, look at what this guy's doing. And he loves to surf and he surfs all the time. And so that was like my first real idea of like, hey, maybe there's something to this whole little idea. You know, and it, and it kind of made me see my dad differently. Like my dad was an entrepreneur without really knowing it. He was trying to create a better life for us. And he saw, my dad saw, even though he was conditioned the same way you and I were, he saw there's a better way. You just have to go out and get it. But he didn't know how to go out and get it because he'd never done it. He didn't have a mentor. He didn't have anybody teaching him. He didn't come from a ton of money where you went to schools and had your dad's friend that owned the firm help you out or give you the first deal, you know, or didn't have any of that. So that's where like this idea that like the bipolar came from is like my dad saw the vision. He saw it was possible and he wanted a better life for me and my mom and my sister. So that's what he was trying to do. But I didn't understand any of that until I went to this surf camp and I saw somebody doing it. Oh, that's what he was trying to do. He's trying to figure out a way to bring in 35 grand a week instead of bringing in a paycheck of $300 a week. No one told my dad that was possible. And then like, you know, it's like you said, no one told us it was possible, but you start going out in the world and you see it and you go, wait a minute, this guy's, the surf, the guy at the surf camp was really nice and he was a smart guy, but no smarter than my dad or no smarter than me or you. And so you start realizing this thing's possible. Mm -hmm. So that was my next foray into there. And I came back and I, I came back and um, I ended up getting a job at UPS at the age of like 19. I got a job at UPS 
And then all of a sudden I was smack dab into that world that I wanted where my uncle Bruce was. I was smack dab into the world of the fifties, grow up, get a job, stay there for 30 years, retire, get a pension. But that's what I wanted. You know, and I found it and, and, and it was good for a while, you know, for a long period of my life. Like I, I'm really good at working hard. Like my, my parents instilled that into so many of us listening to this, like, you know how to work hard, you can get ahead. And that was something that was ingrained, I think, into our generation. Look, you work hard, people will see. You want to work hard, that's how you get ahead. There's no shortcuts. There's no overnight riches. It's, it's, it's work hard and get what you deserve. And that's what, was in, and, and that's what I did. Especially when you're young, man. When you're young, Especially when you're young. and you go from like making like $100 a week to making like $1,000 a week with Ooh. benefits and a 401k and six weeks of vacation, you're just like, what could possibly be better than this? I made you know, it. I'll always be as healthy as I am at 21. I'll never <laughs> suffer a day in my life. I'll just keep raking in this money. You know, right? It, it it seems like a really smart thing to do. Look around at all your friends going to school, and you got all kinds. You're driving a nice car. You know, things are looking up. You get look. I'm gonna buy a house, man. You know, and like, you know, and 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 that's the hook. It's like when you go fishing, you set the hook, right? Like that's the hook. Yeah, the first five years are pretty cool. Yeah, but you, 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 but correct me if I'm wrong. But so that you start, you start watching though. You start coming up in the factory. And you start seeing the older guys in the factory. Oh, that old lazy bum. That guy's slow. Big cup of coffee, two knee braces. Oh, what a dummy, man. I can't even walk around them. That guy sucks. They should get rid of that guy. That guy's super slow. <laughs> you know, as a young kid, you're so arrogant and condescending. Mm. A funny story. I remember as a UPS driver, like I, I, I come up, you know, and like my whole claim to fame was like, I'm going to do the best fashion to everybody. You know, I was like the company kid, man. Toy of the month, play the quarter. Yeah, look at me. Awesome I am. And I remember I had a cool neighbor that was a mentor when I was in my 20s. And I came home one day and I was talking to him and we would drink beers together. And I was complaining about work. And I go, ah, his name was Rick. And I go, you know what, Rick? There's a damn old guy at work, man. Like, you know, he's got this route and whenever he leaves, he's always gone because his knees always hurt. And he comes back and he just bitches and complains. He's got too much work on his truck. And then I go out and I do his route and I can do it like 10 times faster than him. You know, like I should have that route. Like I should have that. I do it way better than him. And I'll never forget my neighbor pushed me up against the wall, dropped my beer. Like he was going to punch me in the face, this guy. And he looked at me, he's like, you arrogant prick. You fuck you. And I was like, what? And he's like, how long do you think that guy's been there? And I'm like, I don't know, like 20 something years. He goes, yeah, 20 fucking years that guy's given his life. And you're in here like a little prick thinking you deserve what he has. That guy's got a family. You have no idea what that guy's been through. Two knee braces. That guy's probably had surgery. You have fucking any idea what that guy's been through. And you're arrogant ass over here saying you should have what he has. You ain't put in the work. You don't know what sacrifice is. <laughs> I was already crying. Like, and I love Rick for that. Cause I was like, oh my God. And I never and after that, like I, you know, I I saw things different. And like that was my first foray. And like you said, the fr the hook is set. I'm making all this money, I'm doing good. The hook was set again. That's gonna be me. And I started realizing those older guys, you know, that that look of despair on their face, that's a heaviness. They know something I don't know. All of a sudden, this life you thought was super awesome, man, maybe it leads to despair. You know, maybe you're making just enough to have a nice car, make a mortgage payment. Maybe you realize that 
can't afford to send your kid to a nice school. Maybe you afford, maybe you, you have a kid with a disability and they have to go to a certain kind of school. Now you don't even make, barely make enough money. And now you realize you, you realize there's some arrogant prick that can do your route 10 times faster than you. And he's running around telling everybody that you suck. You're slow. You know, like, and I'll be damned if life doesn't have a sense of humor because I became the old guy. Mm. I became the guy with the knee brace. And, you know, I'm lucky I had that mentor early on because it, it changed the way that I kind of started seeing stuff. You know, I, I became the liaison for the, for the union, which is a, an interesting story. Um, I became part of the mentor group and began to lead the mentor group. And I began to see the way the corporation worked, man. And the corporation works a lot like the school system. And if one's a cynical thinker, you could even say, hey, the school's feeding the corporate system. They're telling these kids they're dumb, so then they go work at this place over here. You know, you start thinking like, wait a minute. Yeah, no, why did they want me to go into that remedial math class? Hmm. Seems like they wanted some obedient workers over here. And you start looking at the kid that got the job as a manager like, oh, yeah, I know Billy's dad. Billy's dad's a fucking lawyer. Oh, yeah, that's kind of weird. Billy was always kind of a pussy. You know what I mean? No matter, no matter he's got this job. You know, <laughs> you know, you start thinking like, and, all, and she start getting older, like all the pieces fucking start fitting. You're like, oh, damn it. I got scammed. I got ripped off, man. And now I'm 40 years old. What am I going to do? Am I going to go back to a school? Am I going to start doing these things? You know, and this is like, here's where things got interesting for me. Like all these things hit home, man. And I, I worked in California at UPS for, uh, I worked there for 10 years. So I was 29. And then I moved out to Hawaii when I was 29. And I worked at Hawaii UPS until I was 47. And all like, I would say when I hit 40, things really started changing. When I moved to Hawaii, so I sold everything I had. In California, I was still at the hook set, but things were starting to turn. And for me, like I had a nice car. I had a little fishing boat. You know, they're not like a motorized, like a five horse motor on the back, you know, like a robot, little five horse. And, you know, I'd go out and fish and uh, had a nice car and I was renting a place on the water and just up to no good, man. And, 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 but still thinking I was doing pretty well and, but super empty inside. Like I just felt like something was dying. Like and I, well, I, I was going to ask, did you feel like you were kind of just in that like consumer mindset kind of thing? Just, Week to yeah. week, entertain, entertaining yourself, basically, kind of. No spirituality, man. Nothing like there was. There was nothing in me, except the the love of consuming things. Whether that was consuming a bunch of beers, or trying to go out and consume some women, or trying to go out and consume a new car, or trying to fill a void inside me that was bottomless. And everything I was, it's like empty calories, man. You could eat all you want, but it's never gonna fill you up, man. And I felt like I was dying inside, man. And so I got an opportunity to leave and I snatched it. So I got rid of all my stuff, man. I had, you know, you think you have so much, especially for people in their 20s right now, or even later in life, like you think you have so much. But I would challenge everybody to, to do this mental exercise. Imagine going to a foreign state with nothing but a job. Leave everything you've ever had. What would it look like? You know, and I did it. Like they, I put my name on a transfer list. The transfer came up and I said, I'm going to do it. And I remember when, when the transfer came up, my boss was like, he goes, hey, George, I got to see you in the office. I go, okay, great. 
And I'm trying to think, did I do something wrong? Because it happened at work, right? And he's like, he goes, no, no, you're transferred. So I come back to that work that day and he shows me this list, this piece of paper. And he goes, uh, hey man, you're transferred to Hawaii's up. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot to put my name on the transfer list. And the only reason I did it because all the older guys did it. So I put my name on the transfer list and it comes up and my boss says, look, you don't have to go, man. No one ever goes. Everyone just does this for a joke. And I go, no, I'm going to go. And he, I remember like the eye, his eyes light up a little bit. And he's like, what? He goes, man, if you sign that piece of paper, you only have like two weeks and you got to leave, man. He goes, no one's ever done this before. Well, what are you talking about? Are you going to go? He's like, do you know anybody in Hawaii? I'm like, no. He's like, you ever been? I'm like, nope. And he's like, then why the hell would you go, man? Like, you don't know what's going to happen there. What do you do with all your stuff? And I was like, I'm just going to sell it all. He started laughing. He's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, man. You have so much shit here. Dude, you have a great job. Your family's here. You got a nice car. You can just get rid of everything and go somewhere else. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay. Let me sign a piece of paper then. So, so I signed it. You know, and I was like, yeah, fuck it. Why not? And I remember I, it was Taco Tuesday because I went and told my parents the same thing. And they had the same reaction. I'm like, what are you talking about? And but part of me for the first time was like excited. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go somewhere else. I, I don't love it here. And I, that's when I began to understand I didn't really love myself, man. I want to leave. And it's like a metaphor. I wanted to leave me. Well, I didn't want to be me you. anymore. Yeah. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like the labels that were put on me. But more than that, I didn't like the labels I put on myself. And the world, back to Mr. Kelly, back to the environment, to God calling me again, like, hey, man, it's a better way. But now you got to have some courage to do it. No more knocking on your neighbor's door, George. If you want change, you got to have the courage to do it. So good for you. Sign a piece of paper. Are you going to follow through? Yeah. Just got all my clothes, and I went down. There was a little migrant camp, gave away all my clothes, sold my car, my little boat, had my sister take over my rent. Got rid of, I had, man, I must have had 40 pairs of shoes, all brand new. Like, that's what I thought being wealthy was. Look at all my new shoes, man. All different colors. I'm bad, man. I got new shoes. You know, they're so dumb. <laughs> but I thought I was so cool, man. And uh, I get rid of all my stuff. And, you know, at that time, I was probably making 50 grand a year in my, it's 29. Get rid of everything. I got two black bags and five grand. Get on a plane, leave out of LAX, get on a plane doing shots of tequila, man. Woo, going to Hawaii, man. I'm a ball over there. I'm going to give me some new shoes over there, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's so stupid and then i get to the plane and I, I land in hawaii and i get off i you know my buzz is kind of wearing off and i sit in the um in the place where you grab your luggage and it's so quiet man for the first time in my life i'm the new i'm i'm george that nobody knows for the first time in my life i'm all alone in a foreign place and the magnitude of what I've done starts to set in. Nobody knows where I am. I don't have a car. I've got no place to live. I've got five grand. I don't even have a credit card. The fuck am I doing? What? I just made the biggest mistake of my life. I don't have anything. And I've never been here. Of course, I did zero research. You know, I don't know where work is. I don't have a car to get there. I don't have a place to live. I didn't do any of that. So I'm sitting in the baggage claim with my head in my hand, my elbow on my knees, fucking tearing up a little bit, you know, thinking like, wow, what the fuck did I do? And I sat there for like a couple hours, you know, just like, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I don't 
know what to do. And like that was one of the first times I was ever honest with myself all the way through school. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Everyone start crying right now thinking about it because it's so beautiful. Like it was the first time I had to decide for myself. I let the schools tell me what to do. I let my parents tell me what to do. I let society tell me what to do. I let work tell me what to do. So for so long, Clint, that I didn't know what to do. And I want everyone to just fucking think about that for a minute. People listening to this. Do you know what to do? Do you know what to do? Most of us don't because we've been conditioned our whole life. And that question, I didn't even realize to this point, like that question, that airport, that move changed my life forever because I figured out, am still figuring out what I want to do. But asking that question, and a lot of the times it happens when you're all alone and you have nothing. When you hit rock bottom, you know, I was talking to a person who, 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 was going to commit suicide the other day. And I told him, congratulations. Fucking proud of you, man. And their eyes got all big. What are you talking about? I said, congratulations, man. You figured it out. When you get close to suicide, that means that you've had enough bullshit. That means that you are ready to answer the question, I don't know what to do. So for people that find themselves there, like congratulations, man. You made it. Sitting by yourself alone, wanting to off yourself, or sitting with yourself alone in a hospital, or sitting with yourself alone in an airport, guess what? God chose you. Something bigger. The world has chosen you. The world has said, hey, you finally have the courage to ask yourself, what do you want to do? And that's where it started for me. You know, I, 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 I was still scared. I lifted my head up, and I said, okay, well, I got to find a place to stay. Went outside, got a taxi. I told the guy in the taxi, hey, man, I need, I need a cheap place to stay. And I'll be damned if just not having that courage, the world opened up to me. God, spirituality, a new dimension of me. Call it whatever you want to, man. I like to think of it as God. I like to think of it as the environment. I like to think of it as our connection to the world. It started talking to me. Like I was finally willing to accept the word of God. I was finally willing to accept the word of the word, the logos, you know, and I use God in the encompassing term of it, whatever people want to use to describe it. The voice has started, I started hearing it and I learned it was always talking to me. It was always there, Clint. I just never listened, man. And so I went out, I found a place to stay. I found, I bought a moped. I went from a Lincoln Navigator to a moped. You know, <laughs> I've never been happier. You know, I thought I went to work. I started talking to people and, and there was all kinds of bumps along the way, man. Like I got to work and they're like, oh, we don't really have any work for a few weeks. I'm like, dude, I only got five grand. Hmm, what am I going to do? But because I was open to asking that question and because I was honest with myself, I don't know what to do. I started looking around and the world started providing answers for me. It started providing me little clues, maybe not answers, but little clues, man. Like, you know, I would say like, I would see plants like, you know, popping up out of the sidewalk and being like, that's me, man. I, I, I'm strong enough to come here and ask that question. That means there's a way. That plant is getting water somewhere. There's got to be a way for me to find a place. And so I got the moped. I found a place to, I found a place to stay. Um, a couple of, 
and Christmases were tough. It was really tough. There was a lot of bumps along the way where I was without my family. I was without every single umbilical cord to the old George. And that's necessary, I think. I think sometimes you got to burn the boats, man. I think you have to. If you want to become the best version of yourself, you got to burn the boats. There's no going back. You make the decision to have faith in yourself. The world will provide for you. God, the logos, the spirit will enter you. But you must be faithful. You got to constantly show that faith, man. Like, I can do it. And then, then the tests come. So then Christmas comes and I'm away from my family. And they call me and they're having a good time and I'm crying. Like, fucking, I wish I had a family. <laughs> you know, like, man. And so all of a sudden after that happens, on my route, I meet this girl. You know, and here's another test. Like, here's this girl that I think is beautiful. And I'm like, I'd really love to ask this girl out, but I only have a moped. You know, I used to have a navigator. Girls love my navigator. I'm going to ask this girl out. And so I get her phone number and I, I call her up. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? We have a nice chat. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'd love to take you to dinner sometime. And she goes, oh, I'd love that. When are you going to pick me up? And I went, hmm. She, if I'm going to tell her I have a moped, is she going to like me? You know? That's how I was like. No Uber back then. No Uber. There's no Uber, man. And there's, you know, it's it's part of conquering your ego a little bit. And I I, I say to her, I'm like, you know, I, I was kind of hoping you could pick me up. And she started laughing. She's like, what are you talking about? Did you know it's customary for the man to pick up the woman? I'm like, damn, it didn't work. You know? <laughs> so I was thinking in my mind, like, what can I say? And I was like, Look, you know, uh, truth is, I only have a moped. And I, I don't think you'd be comfortable in the back seat of that. And she just, she just goes silent, and I'm like, I just blew it. Thinking like, you know, it's it's one of those pauses when you're with someone that you you're like, and you got those butterflies going, and like, there's just that silence seems so long. And she paused. She's like, you have a moped, <laughs> you know, in like this judging tone, and I'm like, yep, blue. It's kind of fast, man. I got a souped up carburetor on it. Thanks for making cool, you know. I put a pinstrap on that bad boy. It's so funny looking back. You know, like that's all I got, man. But it's got a fast carburetor, you know. And uh, she goes, "Of course, I'll come pick you up," you know. And so it ended up being like a funny thing that we look back on now. But I say that because everything once I left, once I left California, and once I left these old, and more than California, in the job, in the place, I left the old ideas of me behind. And you don't need to go to another state to do that. You can do that right here in your life, man. If you're willing to be honest with yourself, you can begin to leave the old ideas of who you are behind. And when you do that, your relationships get better, your environment gets better, your understanding gets better. You invite in the wisdom of the world when you leave behind the preconditioned ideas of who you are. All these things in school, man, you're not dumb. You might, you might have been the smartest kid in your class, man. You're not ugly. You're not fat. You're not stupid. You're none of those things. Those are just words that people put on you and you believe them, man. And I'm sorry for that because you're none of those goddamn things. You're none of those things. I'm sorry for cussing. I get so crazy. You're none of those things. These are just silly ideas that you begin to believe and you begin to act out on. The truth is everybody listening to this is magical. Everybody listening to this is a genius. If you're willing to have enough confidence in yourself to leave behind the old ideas. And that's what I did, man. And from that point forward, like there was new tests. So I leave behind one and the new George has new tests. He's got new things to do. And 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 one of the things that happened at UPS is I, I, I got married to this woman that I met on my moped you know, a few years go by. And the place I was staying at... Um, 
it was like a gamble. It ended up being like a gambling house. Um, a young Korean kid, super smart. He had a gambling problem. And then all of a sudden he gambled the rent away. And there's like people come over out gambling and stuff. And I'm like, I can't be here, man. I love to play cards, but I can't be here. And I, I learned to see the way the world communicated to me. That the, the same way the world gave me the opportunity to come to Hawaii, when, when, when this kid with a gambling problem started going downhill, that was the world telling me, okay, George, maybe you should be a little more serious with this, with this girl that you like. That's the world. The world was telling me that. And it was telling me that by making sure that the environment I was in was crumbling. Okay, can't be here anymore, George. What are you going to do? You know, and I, I wish more people would see that way that the world talks to them, the spirit, God, the world. When things around you are crumbling, that's the world telling you it's time to move on. Regardless if it's a relationship, regardless if it's, a, if it's whatever it is, when the world around you is crumbling, that's the spirit telling you, you got to move on and you're good enough and you're strong enough. And if you have faith in yourself, it'll work, but you can't stay here because it's dying. And if you stay here, it's going to die, you know? And so we got married, man, and things were going great, man. I had, I had the job. I was getting to be the older guy, but I thought, you know what? I can do this, man. You know, I got another 25 years in me. I can do this. And I, I had this woman and we were making our way in Hawaii and we, she got pregnant, man. And it was like, woo, I'm going to have a baby, man. You know, we, we, we got married. She was pregnant. We were pregnant with our, with our son, man. And we did all the things, Clint, like you go to Lamar's class. For, for people listening, man, like, you know, right? Go to especially, class. Especially when you're like, you're, so at this point, you're probably like in your early 30s. Yes. And so you, you were smart enough to like, I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to take all the best supplements. I'm going to, you know, ground my feet every day and all this jazz. You did all, all of the it. right things. All of it, man. And I, I, I thought to myself, like, look, I, t I really turned this corner and this is the woman of my dreams and she's really smart. And, you know, here I am getting ready to become a man for the first time. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a child and you read the books and you go through everything and you know, you learn the risks. And I'll never forget. I remember we were sitting in Lamar's class and you know, I was kind of laughing because my God, learn how to breathe, tell my wife count 10, you know, and there was like seven of us in this class and I was looking around because I'm so judgmental and I'm still working on that. But like, I remember looking around and there was like this really heavy set guy and he got up and he went outside to go have a cigarette. And I'm like, man, you know, I'm a way better parent than that guy. <laughs> Just such a, I'm such a, I was so arrogant and I'm really trying to work on it. You know, but I remember thinking like that. And as he got up and left, the Lamaze class says, you know, it's very unhealthy and I don't mean to be rude or disrespectful, but I want everybody in here to know something. Statistics show that at least one out of five people will lose their child in childbirth. And I'm like, going to be that guy with the cigarette probably. Probably looks unhealthy to me. And I started looking around and judging everybody, you know, but that, that stat blew me away. And so, you know, we, we went and most people, they'll go and they'll get like the ultrasound and they'll be like, hmm, is it a boy or a girl? And it becomes this game between like the, the, the family, you know, I think it's a boy. I think it's a girl for my wife and I, we, like we went to the ultrasound like three times and that little rascal was like the guy could never see, you know, he was always hiding, you know, that the baby was always hiding in there. Mm -hmm. And so I told my wife, it's a boy. And she's like, it's a girl. I can feel it. You know, we would have these long conversations while I would put my hand on her belly and could feel the baby kick in, you know, and, and, and so we packed the bag in the car and we were, uh, we had, our, we had everything to go. And, um, she, it was over the due date, you know, it was like nine plus months. And we were out eating one day and my, and my wife was doing the kick count. And she goes, George, we got to go to the hospital. I'm like, why? 
Oh, I didn't see your water break. Everything okay? She goes, mm-mm, mm, things are not okay. Why? What's going on? Didn't, we need to go to the hospital, George. Okay. Shoot, I'm like, should we go to the fire, should we go to the fire station? You know, maybe we should go there. Nope, we're in the hospital. Okay, so we go to the hospital, go to the emergency room and rush in. And for anybody who's ever been in the presence of a loved one who knows there's something wrong, it's it it transcends time. Everything changes. And we go into the we go into the emergency room and the lady's like, Are you okay? My wife's like, I I I think there's a problem. And they rush us up to the emergency room and they they bring us in and they hook up my wife to the ultrasound and the doctor rushes in and and I'll never forget, man. Like I'm sitting there, I'm holding my wife's hand. And like they have her hooked up to the ultrasound, and like I can hear the heart, I can hear my wife's heartbeat, and like I see the doctor rush in, lab coat flies up, and he got his stethoscope out, and he's got the stethoscope on her stomach, and I'm looking at the heart monitor, I'm looking at the doctor, and I'm looking at my wife, heart monitor, doctor, my wife, heart monitor, doctor, my wife, and I only see one heartbeat on the heart monitor. And all of us are fucking quiet, man. And the doctor looks at me and he goes, I'm sorry, child has passed away. I'll give you some time. Fuck, oh, man. He's going to fucking cry right now. And uh, God damn it, man. I, just, I remember holding my wife's hand and we were just sat there like in shock. What happened? You know, and then as we were sitting there crying, the doctor comes in and he says, Mr. Martin, I got to talk to you outside. And he goes, uh, you're gonna have to start making some very difficult decisions, you know. And I'm thinking, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Going to have to make some difficult decisions. And at this point, Clint, like, like the words coming out of his mouth were like a the sound of a helicopter coming out of a hummingbird. Like it didn't make any sense, man. I was like, and I'm looking back at my wife, and then I. Snap back to reality. And he's like, your wife's going to deliver this baby. And I'm like, what? 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 What do you mean? And he goes, what happened? I don't know what happened. But here's what's going to happen. The water's going to break, and your wife's going to deliver this baby. And you need to be in there and be a man. You need to be in there and be your husband. You need to be right by her side and do everything you've been taught. She needs you now more than ever. And so sure enough, as we're talking, my wife's water breaks. We go in there. And, you know, she's giving birth and the, the, the doctors come in and, and for anybody who's ever given birth, like, you know, like the doctors come in and this is ordeal and like, you know, it, it's just like a regular birth, but imagine giving birth to a child and knowing that your child's life is gone. There's this incredible, awful in both senses of the word, full of awe and also full of pain, like awful, full of awe. And I'll never forget seeing a child, my child being born for the first time. And like, you see the miracle of birth, but you know that there's no life. And for me, it was like, my wife's pushing and I'm counting. And, 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 and on some level, you're celebrating this birth. And then as, as, my, as, they, as the, my child is born, they, they're like, it's a boy. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I knew it was a boy. <laughs> And where was a boy? <laughs> it's my boy, man. It was the ocean. And, uh, you know, they, they say, you want to hold your son? And at first we're like, no. You know, and I, 
Like, think about the magnitude of that. Like, I, no, my son's dead. I don't want to hold him. You know, and then like a few minutes go, and of course I want to hold him. So, you know, like the, 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 the fucking doctors know, they know you're in shock, man. They're like, we know. We went and we put, we put the hat on them, we put the stuff, and they, they bring your son back in and you're holding your kid, man. You and your wife and your son. He's sitting in the, the room and your son is dead, man. You're looking at your wife, man. You realize, you realize a lot of things, man. You realize the love is what mattered, man. Everything else is bullshit. <laughs> Being healthy, having people you love, that's all that matters, man. Money, all this other shit falls away. In that moment, everything falls away. You realize that life is the most important thing. And those of us that have it should be thankful every day. It doesn't matter what color skin you have or if you got some disease. You have life. And you can live it. You can choose to do what you want with your life, man. We can complain about all these things, man. And I do, and I know other people do. We all want a better life. But the fact is, you have life, man. There's people right now in hospitals that are having children being born that don't make it. There's people right now banging, banging on gurneys. And there's there's family members praying to God right now. Let me have one more day. Give me one more day, man. Give me one more hour with this person. You know, we forget that, man. We forget that we have it all right now. Every gift that God has given us, it's right here in front of us, man. And that changed my life forever. You know, I spent a lot of time in sorrow. I spent a lot of time, why me? So unfair. Bullshit. God hates me. The world hates me. Why don't you take my kid, man? But much like in the beginning, I learned that the tragedies of my childhood were my greatest gifts. I learned to understand that getting to spend that small amount of time with my son became one of the greatest gifts for me too. I wrote a book about it and I think about him every day and I realize that the way you live your life is a testament to everybody who's come before you and your kids and your family. And you should try to make everyone around you better. You should make everyone around you the way your kid would want it. And in some ways, when my son Ocean died, I got to see every other kid as my kid. And I made this promise to him when I was holding him, like, like, you know what? I don't get to be with you, but every kid I see is going to remind me of you. <laughs> every kid I see is going to remind me of you. And I'm going to treat him like that. So every kid I see, man, I, I try to run up and tickle him, you know, maybe not run up and tickle him, but I try to look at him and tell him something beautiful about him. Oh, man. Hey, man, I like that shirt you wear. You have a really, you're really smart. Can I tell you a joke? Because every kid I see, I see my my son in them. And it's it's been life-changing for me, man. And I, I wish everybody could have the gift of 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 getting that my son gave me. I wish everybody could have the gift that my son gave me. And in some ways, that's how people can take that from this conversation is that like everybody you see, treat them like they're your kid, man. Treat them like that. At least give them the benefit of the doubt, man. If you can, if you're thinking negative things, just try and suppress that part of you and give them the benefit of the doubt, man.
And that, that changed me in my moving forward from that. Like that really changed who I was at work. It really changed who I was as a person. It really changed the idea of, I had a lot of misplaced anger after a while. I took it out on a lot of other people. And I, I came to this conclusion, like, I'm going to stop living life. You know, I'd been on this, I'd been on this path. Like I, life had given me this opportunity to ask the question, I don't know what I want to do. And I started doing what I wanted to do. And then when I thought things were going good, everything I wanted was taken away from me again. And I learned like, this is, this is life, man. Like these tests that come to you. Now what? Now what are you going to do? The same thing that happened when I sat in the, in the terminal of the airport and the bag chain was crying. Now what, George? Now my son has passed away and I'm here with my young wife. Now what are you going to do? And so I, I had another turn and I, I started trying to become the change that I want to see in the world. I took Gandhi's quote and I tried to live it. Like I, for me, it was weakness, man. Like I, I started working on weakness. Like I, I started getting really mad that people weren't standing up for themselves. And I saw it at work, all these guys at work, man, anybody who works in a, in a, I was a union guy, a teamster. And I started seeing all these local, all my guys at work, like, these guys are we're not fighting, man. We're not fighting hard enough. And I started asking myself, why is nobody standing up? And then the question came to me, why am I not standing up? You know, and, and I realized I was afraid, man. But then I thought about losing my kid and I, you know, I, uh, hang on a second, George. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I rant, man. I'm sorry, man. Nah, man. Your rants are, are a glory, my friend. That's a lot of heavy stuff, man. <laughs> Thanks, um, man. Hard, but it's beautiful. And I appreciate you being able to testify to that kind of humanness. It's easy for us as religious people, just like you in Lama's class, you know, you're looking at the, <laughs> the fat dude smoking a cigarette. We do, we do that. At, we do that at church, you know, the preacher's preaching. You look around everybody and you're like, yeah, he's talking to that SOB over there. You know, he's talking to that lady over there because she doesn't, you know, she sleeps around too much. Talking to that dude over there because he drinks too much. He's not talking to me. You know, you had a deeply human and tragic experience there with just you and your wife. Y'all are the only ones that can really testify to the magnitude of that kind of Man, it's such it's a loss in such a strange way, you know, because like in that moment, you're you're like you, you I mean, you testified to that. You testified to the beauty of the moment, but also the tragedy of the moment. And it's all at the same time, man. Like that is a hard thing to integrate. Like we can all integrate times of loss and we can all integrate like times of blessing. But like, what if they're like in this insane coupling of like beauty and tragedy like i don't know i don't even know i man i'm at a loss to even relate to that i just i'm proud of you for being able to testify to it i'm proud of you for being able to survive it man like like to come out the other side of that with your sanity intact is like a testament to courage you know and i I don't know your wife. I never met her. But I can only imagine that a, 
but something both so beautiful and painful all at once must have forged her into a new person as well, you know, and almost like giving birth to a new person, you know, cause you know, my wife and I have, have had not a loss like that, but other losses and other victories in our lives that, that forged us into new people, you know, and we, we became those new people kicking and screaming. We weren't interested yeah. in being those people. Like we wanted to be the normal people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just like you, you wanted to be the normal yeah. person who went. Yeah. And then they, you know, six hours later, you, they load you in the car and you go home and you celebrate and you share pictures on Instagram. Here's my boy, you know? Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. Like every, we all want the normal thing, but sometimes God gives us the, the deeply challenging thing. But just like your childhood experiences forged you, that that experience forged you into a person. I, I don't want to preemptively inter, you know, interfere with the yeah, story, man. The, what is the that? It's a conversation. Story, but like that experience, and I, 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 in a way, I like almost. I don't know if you see it this way. Almost because I've heard your story in a condensed fashion. Yeah, I see the the young man at the baggage claim with his head in his hand. And then I see the new father with the head in his hand. And I'm thinking, these are potent experiences that bring you to your core. Just like when you're sitting in the baggage claim with no house, no car. I mean, you had a job that that's good. Right. Yeah. You had something. Right. But in, in a way you were stripped of your identity. And you had to, you had to ask the question, where do I go from here? I'm at the end of myself. And I'm sure like, as that new father, you, you're not the father you wanted to be, but you're once again at the end of yourself. That sometimes that's where psychedelics take us. At those points in your life, had you experienced that kind of psychedelic manifestation in a substance way or had you only experienced it in that very potent human day-to-day -day life way i guess, I guess in, a, in a roundabout way i'm asking had you had you already had psychedelic experiences by then or not i want to say first clinton thank you like i the way your the language choice you have has brought up some really inner, I never thought about it as the way you said it back to me in this idea of getting to see something beautiful with something so painful at the same time that maybe they're coupled like that is that changes the way I think about things. Thank you for thank you for that observation. Like I never, well, I thought about it. I never had been able to put that in words before. I think you're you're right on that. And, and thank you for that. I, and, and on top of that, I've never really thought about this question that you're asking me about my relationship with psychedelic substances from this point of view as a person with their head in their hand in both those instances. And the answer to that question is I have, you know, I, I began my first date with psychedelics 
was at 17 at a Pink Floyd laser show. You know, a dark side of the moon. And we, me and my buddy had split like a, like a quarter of mushrooms or an eighth of mushrooms or something, you know, and it was just enough to turn the lights on. And I remember that first time, I don't remember exactly everything that happened, but I remember the feeling that I got like towards the peak. I remember thinking, Oh, I got it. And it was this fleeting moment. It was really slippery, but there was a moment when everything made sense. Even though I didn't know everything, I realized that everything made sense. A certain side, a certain sort of wholeness that was just a passing glance in that trip. And I, I, that was at 17. You know, I had definitely had some other dates with, with psychedelics and, and LSD, especially I had some really fascinating experience with them. And on some level, like I, maybe those helped prepare me looking back, you know, on some level, I think that there is a, a thread to curiosity there. Maybe like I was curious the first time I did mushrooms, I wanted to do them because I was curious about changing my state. I was curious about consciousness. I was curious about more than anything, meaning like what is it all for? You know, what are we doing here? Like those are the questions that led me, I think, to want to explore different sides of consciousness. And that same thread, be it through LSD experiences or mushrooms or this sort of calling to this curiosity, you know, they did lead me to alternative consciousness and different states of being different ways of feeling the world, different ways of finding meaning. And when I was in the airport, it was a psychedelic state of, it was a different form of meaning. I was, a, I was in a different reality, the same way that a really high dose of psychedelics can put you in a different reality, different dimension maybe. So too was my trip to Hawaii and, and that, you know, in some ways you could say that the, the psychedelic trip is a short form of life. I mean, just listen to the language we use about it. Like you're going on a trip the same way you go on vacation, you go on a trip. When you get high, you're looking down at things. When you get high, you have a different perspective. So yeah, I, I do think that psychedelics have played an incredible role in there. I don't... I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it no, just, it's it beautiful. Like I'm, I'm just curious because I think that in my youth, my psychedelic experiences, in some way, albeit minimal, because nothing can prepare you ultimately. I mean, for losing someone you love, but I think the ability that, like, whatever happens when you're in a psychedelic experience. It's almost like you're holding the you that that's still tethered to the earth while also, if it's deep enough, you're almost like simultaneously witnessing the ultimate end of yourself. And when I've lost people I've loved, I've felt not the same way. I don't want anyone who's never done psychedelics to misunderstand. Right, right. Like, you know, when 
you're at a funeral, you're experiencing psychedelics, but when you're at a funeral, you have to, you have to hold those two things. You have to hold the beauty and the love that you shared with that person and possibly the pain that you shared with that person and maybe even the ways they gave you pain and the way you gave them pain. And then also, in spite of all that, you're mourning their loss. Like, there's so much going on there. And at times, it can feel like your mind and your heart are racing. And that's okay. You're having a real, real human experience. One of the stories in the Bible that always was in some ways confusing to me, but also made a lot of sense was, you know, when Jesus returns from his travels and he finds out that his friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus is not cavalier about that. He's broken. He's in tears. He's bereft of, of the ability to compose himself. You know, he's crying. He's, you know, now it's within his capacity, and he knows that, to go and return this man to life. And he does. But, like, why would, what was he witnessing there on a level that, I think sometimes when we lose someone, we don't even have the capacity to speak as a witness to, like, how separated we are at that moment. Like, it's almost like something is torn out of your body. And sometimes in a psychedelic experience, you feel that that renting of your core self, you know, remotely similar to the way I felt when someone I've loved died. You know, I feel a rending of my of my soul, kind of. I think I dropped a big crater in the middle of your story here, but not at all, man. But it just, uh, I don't know, man. I just feel the need to like kind of witness that humanity because I think every one of us, all the people listening to this, maybe they haven't shared your exact experience, but I think just like me, they're all going to feel the potency of those feelings because we, we either all have, or we all will experience that kind of loss, that kind of of deep searing in our heart. And there's a lot of places I would like to go with that, but time probably doesn't allow, but but there's always healing. There's always the opportunity to heal. To heal and to integrate those painful mm. parts of our lives in a way that mm -hmm. in a way that can serve us and in a way that can serve others. So I, I feel like, I feel like you're, you're doing that. You know, I feel Let's like talk. you've taken the pain and the, of your past and you're, you're channeling it in a way that, that is helpful to others. I mean, your, your story gives me courage, man. It really does. It gives me, gives me courage, gives me, the fortitude it gives me knowledge that my friend george can carry these burdens surely surely i can and if i can't maybe i can uh maybe i can lean on him when the when those times come you know yes yeah like but let's talk about that for a minute like 
what does it mean to heal? Like, like, like it, our language fails to accurately describe what's really happening. We don't have a way to thoroughly convey meaning between two people. So we use words like pain and, and suffering and healing and breaking. And I think that the closest we can get to it is when you talk about your soul being seared. Like maybe that's what this is. Maybe we're here to have our soul stretched and changed in ways that only tragedy can do it. Because what does it mean to heal? It mean, Meaning to heal means coming to terms with an event that you would never wish happened to you. Coming to terms and learning from something that wasn't your fault, that didn't deserve to happen, that you didn't want to happen, that's painful, that continues to hurt. Like maybe... That's what we're here for. And maybe healing is beginning to understand what it's like to be part of that divine spark that's in us. You know what I mean? Like maybe that that's why we're here. And when you start talking about death and psychedelics, maybe we're learning to die. Maybe all these things that are happening to us are so that we can learn to die. Whatever die means. I don't die doesn't have to be gone forever. Die means to maybe die could mean transform into the very person we're supposed to be. Because when I start looking at my life from that terms, and thank you for presenting it this way, it seems to me that I'm seeing all these signs along the way that teach me how to react when it's my turn. And that it is painful and beautiful. And the more painful, the more beauty in there. And that would describe why so many people get lost and turn to pain for it to be beautiful. So people hurt themselves so they can feel good because those two things are one and the same. And maybe this path of life we're on is learning that. It's like, you know, you get to see this thing that is the worst thing in your life and the most beautiful. And there's no words for that, but there is a feeling that comes from it. And there is the opportunity to share that with other people and try to find a linguistic pathway to show other people like maybe, maybe that's why we're here. And like, you know, especially in the Western culture, like, why are we so afraid of death? We take the, we take our people, we put them in homes and like the word palliative care, pa -ah, the derivative pa means to cover up. Like we cover up our dead, we move them into it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to be around them. We go to a, a funeral and we mourn and we wear black and we're so sad. Like maybe it's our fear of death that is driving us instead of our celebration of life. You know what I mean? Like maybe, yeah. and I think the psychedelics teaches that a little bit. Like you're right here, right now, man. You got life. I don't know, I don't know what the right way to observe a death is, but I'm pretty sure the way we do it is the complete the wrong way of the right <laughs> way to do it. like it's so horrible it's so i don't know i don't, I don't and I, th I think it's because we're not we're not integrated with it like we we deny it to the bitter end and then we face it and we have to face it that well the sad thing uh, maybe it maybe it's in yet another construct of modern western society like just like education Maybe the reason we observe it that way is because we box it in. It all has to happen in two days. Like you've got to book the book the uh, you know 
the plot. You got to book the, the funeral home. You got to schedule the hearse to drive around. Everybody turns their lights on. You get in a line of cars and you drive across the road to the cemetery. Like maybe the reason we observe it in this really like fast, compact, like feel all our pain, shed all our tears in, in a day or two and get it over with so we can get back on the that damn wheel that or that hamster wheel that we're all in. You know, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But however it is that we observe death, I, I think it's wrong. I, I'm hopeful that maybe psychedelic experiences might be able to give us a better informative way of of intuiting like how we should share in this death experience, you know? I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't grieve. I mean, I think I think that's a natural, healthy response. I think the the shedding of tears and the the feeling of the pain of the loss is 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 natural and wholesome. And I honestly believe that may be why that story is preserved for us in Scripture, because no doubt Jesus knew many other people who died, but we only have the story of Lazarus. And if if a very if a very embodiment of God in human form sheds tears at the loss of a friend, then no doubt we should feel the comfort to do the same. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't feel um, in any way weak or or foolish in in our grieving. You know that that's a wholesome and 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 responsible way to to integrate the loss of a, of a, of a loved one, I think. But, but something about the way the Western world, at least the modern Western world, yeah. I don't, I don't think that was a thing in the past. I, th I think this is an invention of modern industrial society uh, because yep. I think in times past, you didn't have the convenient refuges from death that we have today. You know, we have a, we have this, this beautiful little box here that can entertain us to know we yeah. to distract us. And we have various ways of containing the smells of a dead person and stuff. And we do all these things to pretend like it's not, it's not decomposition or whatever. I, I, we've really abstracted death from the human experience. And that is yeah. both a gift and I think a deep deficit to our character. Anyway, I get I could preach a sermon on that. I think, but uh, it's true. Uh, it's not a uh, not the time for that. I think we've taken the dignity out of dying. Yes, you know, yeah. like I remember my my grandma. She she went to this rest home and she was on a machine for like years. The insurance company just kept her alive because they, she was getting so much money from the insurance company for the home. She was she died a long time ago, but her body was still alive. And for anybody who knows who's been close to death, sometimes we can keep the body alive, but the soul is gone. You could see it in their eyes. And you could see like they're not there. Not, something's there, but it's not them. You know, and like we, we, we put this shroud over it and we put them away and we have taken away the ritual aspect of it from dust to, from ashes to ashen and dust to dust from the earth and, and to, re to return to it. You know, like 
when you look at some death with some indigenous cultures, my, my friend E.B. was Cherokee, and he told me this beautiful story. As, as, as my grandmother lay dying on a machine and already gone, and, and he had told me a story about his father before he passed away, had called him, and his father lived on the mainland, and he lived here in Hawaii, and his dad said, hey, I'd love, I'd love to see you. I'm going to die, and I would like to come out and see you one more time. He's like, all right. So he goes out there, and he meets his dad, and they have a beautiful conversation and a weekend together. And his dad tells him, like, it's my time. It's my time. And I'm going to go hike up this mountain and I'm going to die. And he's like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, I, I, I'm being called. Like, I, I don't, I can't not be here. I, my body is really sick and ill and I can't, I don't have much time left. And so they had this weekend. And then a week later, he got a call and like, hey, your dad was found on this mountain. You know, maybe not everybody has the fortitude to understand when your time is or when you can do it, but how much of death is an industry? You know, people go to the hospital and like, if you look at like my, so many, my, my dad is probably on like 15 different pills and he goes to the doctor for all these different things. And, you know, like how much of our economic system is built on death as an industry. And what does that mean? I mean, on some level, if it's an industry, don't you want the industry to continue? Like if it's built on an industry, if people's lives depend on people dying, like, what does that mean? You want to hear something really twisted? Like, what do you think happened to my son's body? Like people listening to this, they came in and they had to take my child from me within an hour. And I remember they had to fight. They had to rip that child from my arms. Why? Why did they need my child's body when it was still warm? Why? I would challenge people to look it up and ask. You know, here's a, here's a little hint. When you go to the hospital and you're pregnant, they give you a big ceremony. Like, what are you going to do with your core blood? You know, they'll tell, the, they'll tell the families this. And if you had kids, you know this. Or if you're going to have kids, you will be sat down in front of a nurse. And the nurse will tell you, we would like to have the placenta and the cord blood because this can save lives. And if you donate it to us, it can help all of these people. And here's why. And they'll tell you that. And they save that. They save, maybe not the placenta, but they save the cord blood. That's a valuable, valuable commodity. What do they do with a child's body that passes away? What do they do with a child's foreskin? Like, where does that go? I would challenge people to look at that. It's disgusting. And they'll say, oh, well, we're doing it to save lives. Are you? Well, you're making money off of it then. You start thinking like, hmm, you know, hospitals operate at, like, hospitals will operate at a loss. Where does their money come from? What are they doing with those parts? You know, they, they look at it like parts. And like, for me, like, that's one of the places where I began to see, like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Then what? You know, and I remember having these questions like, oh, look, we're going to take your child and we'll send him to the mortuary afterwards. And we had our, we had, I had my son cremated, but like, what did they do to his body? They took that kid and they used him. Death is an industry, not just with infants and abortion, but with old people too. And this is why we're afraid of death. Unconsciously, we realize that death, we are, we're being farmed on some level. And I, man, I hate to go down, like, I don't hate to go down this tangent, but this is a dark one, man. We as humans are being farmed on some level. They take children that are aborted and use them for parts. They'll tell you in the hospital, we want your core blood. If you have a child that dies, what do you think they do with that kid? How come you can't bury your kid in your yard? 
Why can't I take my kid home and bury him the way I want to? Why is there a team of people that come in and take that child from me? Look at the way, like I love Rogan and I, I saw him on um, Kennedy. Kennedy came on a show mm-hmm. and Rogan goes, hey, Kennedy, man, you look great. What are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm on an anti-aging program. What? Like, look at that guy. That guy looks like he's, he's probably 45 and he's probably close to 70. How did he get like that? Like, where are they doing research for anti-aging? You know, like, these are some dark rabbit holes that people should really take some time to think about. Because that's why we are afraid of death. Like we should be celebrating life instead of farming people so other people can live lives longer. You know, it's interesting. Peter Thiel started a company where, he specifically started a company where young men can go and donate blood. And I mean, young healthy men in their 20s can donate blood and give it to older people. And the older people will live longer. Like that's a real company. There's real science behind that. I think that's all I'll say about that. But I, I, I think that the idea of death as something we fear comes from the unconscious understanding of what's actually happening to us. We're being conditioned to be afraid of death because we are on some level like the cow that's going to slaughter. We know. We know what's happening. And that's why you see people... UPS drivers like myself get to 50 and they get pushed out. Hey, you can't cut the mustard anymore. You can't chew the leather anymore. Oh, I am no longer useful for production. Got it. People should wake up to that. Because when you wake up to that, you begin realizing that you've been lied to a large part of your life. Maybe you've been, maybe this whole thing we've talked about so far, Clint, being conditioned into school to feel dumb, going into a job that you don't want to do, being kept on an economic treadmill where you can never get ahead. Maybe, maybe it's not a bug. Maybe it's a feature. Maybe people should wake up to that. And I think they are. I think people around the world are waking up to this life that none of us chose. And it comes with spirituality. This waking up to faith and this waking up to this world we're living in, that's not a coincidence, man. When you invite God, when you invite faith back into you, you get that divine spark back and you realize your life is worth living. You're not dumb. You're not fat. You're worth it. Every single one of us deserves, not not should, deserves to live the best life possible. And you're not greedy. You're not selfish for wanting more. You want what's best for your family. You shouldn't have to give that up. You know, the, the pursuit of happiness, it's in our founding documents. And I don't know what your pursuit of happiness is, but my pursuit of happiness is becoming the best possible version of myself for me and my family. And it's this realization that like, it leads me to, I was working at UPS and I, like all of these things we've talked about, the psychedelics, my son, my schooling, a learning disability, my parents not making it, death, all of these things coalesced. And I couldn't do it anymore, man. I started speaking out at work to a point where I started, they said, look, George, production's a problem, man. Your numbers are wrong. And I'm like, no, no, it's not my numbers, man. Look at everybody here. How can it be all of our numbers, man? We didn't make up these numbers. These are your numbers. And I remember sitting down with the immediate manager at the time and he he shows me, he goes, see, he shows me this piece of paper and on it is highlighted all these numbers. And he goes, well, according to our equation and our algorithm, George, 
you know, the production standards that, that you're, that you are supposed to hold up, you're not holding up. I go, wow, man, that must be tough for you. Yeah. You know, and I don't like being the guy to tell you this, George. I'm like, would you mind explaining to me how these numbers work? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's these, there's these three variables right here, George. And one of them is, um, you know, your stops per hour. One of them is the amount of packages in the car. And the other is um, like the miles that you're doing. And we take this matrix and then that gives us this production standard. I go, okay, so, so you're telling me that what you have to find all the right variables and measure all the variables. And then that gives you the answer to the equation. Yeah. And I break out, I got technical. I'm gonna go, that's like the Pythagorean theorem, right? A squared plus B squared is C squared. And that is a mathematical truism. And what that says is if you add up the variables, you'll get the answer to the equation. And so I tell my immediate manager, okay, I got it. So these are the variables. And in order to get the, the number of production that you want, you have to measure the variables. Yes, George. And I did it the third time to the point where he's like, yes, you measure the variables, you get the answer. Okay, great. What about the other variables? And he looked at me like a deer in the headlights. What do you mean? Well, you know, what about like the weight of the package? Like if I have a truck with like 150 stops and the average package weight is like 70 pounds, is that different than a truck that has a package full of letters? He just stared at me. I go, what about like the road conditions, man? Like what if it's pouring down rain on my side of the island, you know? What about the customer's attitude? Like what if I have to deal with like 15 horrible customers? What if some of my stuff's upstairs and the elevator doesn't work? And I named off like 10 of them and he's like, you know what, George, you're being very difficult right now. And I'm like, me? I, I, you told me we have to measure variables. And I'm asking the question, why aren't we measuring all the variables? Because I believe if we measure all the variables, you'll see that my production standards are off the charts. I'm crushing it out there. And so is every other man and woman out there. But because you choose not to measure those variables, you have an obscure view of production. And we could change it. I've been here for 26 years. I know what I'm doing. If you want it to be better, we could work as a team, management and, and drivers. I can do dispatch. I can work with the drivers in my area. We can change dispatch and we can make these numbers. We could start it right here in Hawaii. We could change the way UPS works, man. We could change the matrix. And he goes, you can't do that. I go, why not? And he goes, well, first off, it's too hard. And second off, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> imagine a leader telling his people it's too hard and I don't know how to do it. And you know what? Like I, I took this conversation from him all the way to the district manager. Cause I, I the, the kid that the first conversation is like the, it's like glass Joe and Mike Tyson's punch out easy. It's like the first level of, of whatever game you're playing super easy. And you realize that person is naive. It's not they're a bad person. It's just that they don't know that they were thrust into a management position. They believe this idea that they're a manager, so they're smarter than everybody and that they're just doing what they're told. And a lot of times managers are the most afraid people. A lot of the times this person in, much like all of us, we don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our livelihood. And when you start bestowing titles on people like a manager, what does that mean? You know, so I get all the way up to the district manager. And I've already had this conversation and I've already, just like all the wrestling matches, dude, I'm going to, I'm, I have a truth to talk. And I, I know by the time I get to the district manager that he knows that this is true. And so I sit down and I have this conversation with him and he stares at me and he's like, you know what, George? It's a young man's game. It's a young man's game, George. And I don't appreciate you making it very difficult for everybody in here. This is what you're telling me. And he's like, 
I just, I, I really think you're very disruptive and you're causing problems with all the employees. Cause I, I was standing up and saying this stuff out loud in front of the entire building, you know, and like it got to the point where the manager would stand up and I'd be like, who here thinks you're a leader? How dare you stand up and try to talk to us at this PCM? No one here has any respect for you. Do you think you're a leader? And I would, I'm like, raise your hand if you think this guy's a leader. And they'd be like, shut up, George. And I'm like, you know, I don't even have to turn around because I know no one's raising their hand, Ben. Not one person raised their hand. How does that make you feel, man? You think you're a leader? You know, and like, it's no reason why I got fired. Like I'm doing stuff like that. But the, the district manager to me, like that's when I wanted him to admit to me, like I wanted him to admit it's, a, it's not a bug, it's a feature. And I couldn't do it anymore. And, I, and I, it was so hard. I got perp walked out, but I had the this another one of these moments that was equally beautiful and heart-wrenching at the same time. Because I had told this guy at the very top, I'm like, do you know the difference between a leader and a manager? He goes, what? I go, a manager is someone who, a leader is someone who does the right thing. And a manager is someone who does things right. Which one are you? Because you said you were a leader. It doesn't sound like that, man. I don't think you're doing the right thing. I think you know what's right. And you're choosing not to do the right thing because it's, it's a paycheck, man. And I get it. But don't call yourself a leader. Shortly after that, you know, there were some things that happened. I was perp walked out by security. And I was told I was a very dishonest person. And I was so proud of myself for standing up until I got outside of the gate. And I had another one of these moments with my head in my hand on my knees. And I realized I just walked away from $100,000 a year job. I realized that my kid has needs and stuff for school. And I realized that my wife has a job and that I, in my moment of standing tall and trying to be somebody important, turned my back on my family, or at least I thought I did. Now, 100 grand gone. How are you gonna pay your mortgage, George? How'd you pay your kid's tuition, George? How are you gonna pay your bills? What about life insurance? What about, you know, food on the table. What about all this stuff, George? You know, and I went to a dark spot, man. And I, and one of the things that saved me is like this idea of like, I was telling my daughter, look, when you, in life, you got to do, you got to stand up for what you believe in. You have to, you, you, you don't go do something you don't want to do for, for some reason, because you, you're going to live a life that's not worth living if you do that. And I, I was telling her this for eight years, you know, and I realized all these things I'm telling her, I'm not doing. And so I think that this for years, for a few years, me standing up at work was this echo of family dynamics of me not living up to the father that I could be, me not living up to the person I could be. And finally, I had enough where I started standing up. But when you stand up, sometimes you get cut down. And so... That, that's been the latest move. Like that happened about a year ago. And it's it's been life-changing, Clint. Like to be a man, God forbid, a white guy that's almost 50 years old and all I've known for my whole life is truck driving. You know, you go through this other dark night of the soul where you go like, you know, I, I what am I going to do now? Who's going to want me? What do I have? And then for me, I, I said, you know what? I'm not going to take... I'm not even going to apply for unemployment because I'm going to find a job like that because I know how to work hard. But you know what? I applied for like 400 jobs. Not even a call back. You know, you start thinking like, man, it's been about a year. What are you going to do? You know, and so again, while the world around me is crumbling, 
like I, I'm starting, I started having, you know, three months in, you know, I started having some real doubts, start going in these kind of darker spots. But I realized as the world around me was dying, I was starting to confront the real problems of myself. I started having these, what started off as arguments with my wife, turned into these long conversations about trust. And because I left there, like I, I think it's become this gift. Like I've learned so much about what I wanted in life. You know, I, my wife says, you got to go back to school. And so I would, I tried to go back to school a couple of times and then I quit. And she's like, what is your problem with school? And my school is pointless, man. It's boring. You know, I, I, you don't learn anything there. Nothing good ever comes of it. And she's like, you're full of shit. So I went to school. I got a master's and good things came out of it. She goes, why do you think that? And then all of a sudden the realization hit me. You know what? I think that because for the 12 years that I went to school, I was told I was dumb. I had like, you know, I thought that. So I equated that in my mind. So because I have the courage to leave and start over again in my life at the age of 50, because you open yourself up to these things, you begin to confront the things that have held you back for so long. And there's a pattern. And it's the same way I left California to come to Hawaii and start it over. It's like a death in a rebirth. So I saw that first time when I came here to Hawaii. I saw an actual death in a rebirth with my son. And now I see it again in my life. And by the third, you know, they say the third time is a charm. And it's this time around that I can actually see the coalescence of the beauty and the tragedy together and I can integrate it and I can be thankful for it. And I think that's part of life, man. Like all of these things that have gotten me here, man, like, and I'm welcoming this change because I know that this change is what opens me up into living a life I didn't know possible. Like where I am now, I'm crushing it right now. And I realize now that the life that I thought I could have working at UPS makes you struggling, man. I knew if I could work, if I could put in 80, I could probably make about a buck 50, man. You know, and then my wife would make like 80, we'd be making like 225. But after I got fired and escorted out, I realized it was never about money, man. I realized that no matter how much money I made there, I would never be happy. I've never been happier than now. You know, when I was working there, I was 70 hours a week. I never went home. My wife would be like, you're never here. You don't talk to your kid. You don't do homework with your kid. I got to do all the chores and I have a job. And what do you do? You just go to drive a truck all damn day. And now it's like, I'm home doing homework with my kid, take my kid to school back and forth. I will gladly sell my house and move back to California and be a father and a husband and be a million times better person without any misplaced anger, without me projecting my negative things on people. Because now I know, like, I'm a, I am worth it. And regardless, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where I live. If I have my family and my health, I got everything there. That's a long-winded way of saying like these patterns in life keep happening. And if you say yes to growth, and it's always going to be scary, the, the, the next challenge will be even harder. The next one, you're going to confront more of your shadow. The next time will be even more scary and more difficult. But if you can look back on the past experiences and use them as a catalyst to know that this is just the way of God talking to you and saying, look, champ, huh, I don't know if you're going to beat this one. This guy's real tough. Can you beat him, champ? You know, that, that's just, that's just God giving you a pep talk, man. Like, of course I can beat him. Give me, I got faith. How do you know, George? This one's going to be mean and scary, man. I got faith, Lord. Bring it on. I got it. I'm not afraid anymore, man. 
And I don't want other people to be afraid either. I want them to be concerned. But I want them to know if you're willing to thoroughly believe in yourself and your family, man. If you have a family and they believe in you, there's nothing you can't do, man. And do it because if, if you do it, your kid will do it. And we can change the way we see death. We can change the way we raise our kids. We can change the way we feel about ourselves. When we do that, we change the world, man. Thanks for letting me share that, man. <laughs> Just glad you felt comfortable sharing it here, man. <laughs> you know, uh, to any of anyone listening who's not, I, I, you know, I don't know what other industries are like, George. You know, I've, I've kind of been on your side of things. You know, I work in a in a, a union factory. Yeah, here, here. Um, I've see how you can, with the biggest heart and the best of intentions, you can make the best recommendations. And people just look at you like you're an absolute idiot. They <laughs> So and they true. Even, and they even, I mean, I started to say they'll reference this, but no, they come right out and say it. They say, can't you just get with the program? You know, just, just do what everybody yeah. else is doing and shut up. Yep. You know, and it's like, I know you're like, I'm trying to help you, man. Like, like if you would just own this, yeah, I'd give it to you freely. Take this yes. idea, this beautiful, amazing, transforming idea. Everyone. Take it and run with it. I'll just, I'll clap for you. And they're like, no, nah, my boss wouldn't appreciate that. You know, and you're just like, yeah. you're like, what are we all doing here? Like, aren't we all trying to like, make money and make this thing work and you know feed our families and it's like mm -hmm. i'm giving you gold here man i'm giving you gold yeah. and they're just yeah. like no that's your job is to give us energy exchange your energy for money that's your job yep. let us yeah. do the thinking it, it's yep. it's very soul crushing you know and you know so I, I know from experience what that feels like um i haven't experienced uh you know getting perp to walk out yeah. Yet. So. <laughs> well, you know, like, and, and people listening to this, like, they're, they're UPS drivers, or they work at Firestone, or they work, they work at a place that doesn't appreciate them. And I can't do it anymore, man. Like, there's so many of my brothers and sisters out there. Like, I, I have this really cool gift of being able to string together language that can sometimes make arguments sound good, you know. And I realize, like. So many of my friends, like at UPS, double knee surgery, divorce, I've gone over and picked up my friend's kids so that they could fight, you know? And like, I'm so sick and tired of like, another time there was an insurance guy that came and there was, there was a, they had a big meeting with the insurance guy and the insurance guy came in buddy, buddy with all the managers. And, and this is the insurance guy says this, you know, just want to say thank you to everybody here. And I get it. A lot of people don't like insurance agents. And I want to tell you this. I am one, I am the agent for UPS on the West Coast. And this is going to sound crazy to some of you, but I actually care about you. I want every one of you in here to be safe and healthy. And I know that may sound, you guys might say that's bullshit, but it's true. I raise my hand. I go, I got a question. And he goes, yeah, what is it? I go, you know, first off, thank you for caring for everybody here. Our number one injury is a repetitive motion injury. And your company spent $10 million trying to prove there's no such thing as a repetitive motion injury. So I guess I'm just wondering, how can you sit here and tell all these people here, some of them have given 30 years of their life, how much you care about them when your company is going out of their way to stop our number one injury from being reported? Do dead silence. 
And he's like, what are you trying to paint? You got all mad. We tried to paint me in a corner. Huh? You think you're cool? You know, sort of like just these ad hominem attacks all of a sudden, you know, boom, I'm out back in the office being threatened again. But like, it's that level of arrogance and bullshit that is thrust upon people that get up and go to a job or go working. And it doesn't have to be in a union hall. It could be in a law office for all I know. But there is a level of bullshit that we should not be taking anymore. When someone stands up and tells you I'm an honest person, I have never had an honest person have to tell me how honest they are. You know, like there's little signs when someone, I'm an honest person. No, you're not. You wouldn't say that if you were honest. I, you wouldn't have to condemn it. Like, but and people get mad. People get mad. Like the same way that you're saying, like, people get mad at you. Like I'll tell people at my work right now, like, man, I've never been better. I took a second on my house. I'm gonna sell it. And like, people are like, oh man, I'm so sorry, George. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm like, I I'm not, man. And they're like, no, it's cool. You're just, I get it, man. You're just, it must be really tough. And I'm like, yeah, I've never been better. And they're like, oh man, it's brave of you to say. Like, no matter what I say to him, it doesn't get through. And here's, here's another part for, for my union friends out there. Like, I realized how undergun the union was. Like the union, at least where I am, like it's, it's guys that were voted to be in the union. And so when I got fired, I went for a meeting afterwards. And the first meeting, it was me, my two union reps, and the division, there was a, a, a division manager that met us via Zoom, and it's the center manager and my immediate manager. And we went through the whole process, and they explained to me that I'm dishonest. And I, you know, I, I, have, I have no shame in what I've done. I didn't do anything wrong. They told me I smoked all this. I'm like, I didn't burn anything I'll, in my opinion, what you guys are doing is retaliation. And I don't have any ill will towards you guys. I know you're scared. I know you guys are afraid to lose your job and you have to do this. I get it, but you're wrong. And none of you were leaders. And so they're like, well, you, you know, we're not going to give you your job back, George, because you sound like a very disgruntled and angry person. Like that, that was, they never addressed the dishonesty. They just told me I was a bad person. And I'm like, okay, fine. I get it. You know, but along the way, there's all these tests, you know, like, like two months in and like, you know, my, my bills are coming due and my wife's working and I'm not working and my identity's being stripped away again. It's like, am I a dad? Am I a provider? What am I doing? Is this just, why don't I swallow my pride? And that's the exact question that came up the next time I went to my union. My, the, my, the head guy goes, you know what, George? I know you didn't do anything wrong and I admire your courage. But if you want your job back, why don't you just swallow your pride and go apologize to these people? Why don't you do this? Why don't you go in and tell the managers, I'll call a meeting and you can talk to the executives and then the person from the mainland. And you can just say that you and your wife are fighting and your kid's giving you problems. And you could say that you've been having problems at home and you can blame everything on them and they'll give you your job back. I guarantee they'll give you your job back if you say that. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, just swallow your pride. And I'm like, Okay, so you want me to blame my family for this thing and then I'll get my job back? He's like, yeah. And I'm like- He's like, yeah, it's a great I, idea. Come on. Yes, that's exactly it. And I'm dumbfounded. I'm like, I, like, I just, I, I, Clint, like- I The complete absence of any integrity, like on, on, on multiple, multiple levels, like- Everyone knows it's a lie. And they're like, if you'll just lie to us, George, just tell us the lie yes. we want to hear and we'll reward you for it. You might yes. even get a promotion, dude, because you will be the head ass kisser. Yes. You'll be promoted. They'll, they will laud you as a good man who just had a rough week. 
and he's come to his senses. <laughs> That's exactly it. Guaranteed that I would have been brought back with open arms. And they probably would have lightened up my load, you know, things, but they probably, I probably would have, they would have given everything back. And like, but that again, that is life saying, okay, you stood up for yourself. What if I offer it all back? You know, I think that that's God. I think that's life saying, okay, George, good for you. You stood up for your family and you say you have integrity, but guess what? Now your family's struggling. You're going to have to pull your kid. You got to take a second on your house and you ain't gonna, you're not going to be able to pay back your bills, George. How about I give you your job back now? Now what do you do? You know, I'm reminded of the story of Job. How about now? Now am I a bad God? How about, how about I take this from you? How about now? You know, and I, I, I think about that story. And I've had more meetings since then. And, and every time, like, then I had another meeting after this first meeting. And this one was the official panel meeting. And there was a lawyers there from their side. And they, I sat in this chair and they read me the riot act and they went through all these things and they painted me and they said things that weren't true about me. And I sat there and I, for like two and a half hours and I just, I wasn't allowed to talk while they said all these things about me that weren't true, you know? And, and, and then at the end I was gone and they, they hashed stuff out before, but I, I told my, my team before the proceeding started, they go, what do you want? George? Do you want your job back? And I go, I, I want them to give me every dime that I've earned since I've been wrongly fired and I want them to apologize to me and then I'll come back. But I want them to apologize to me and I want back pay for every day I've been gone because I didn't do anything wrong. And anything short of that, I, I, I won't come back. And they're like, okay. So we go through this whole proceedings and then at the end of it, like I leave and then the next day I talk to the... To the and it, it was so crazy too because you know, you're talking about a lawyer questioning a team of truck drivers, you know, and you, there's a clear distinction, in the language that's used and the ad hominem attacks and, you know, the way in which they use colorful language to paint things that weren't true. And the, and, and there were times where my counsel was like, they tried to talk and they're like, Oh, sorry. Um, teamsters, this is not the part where you guys talk, you know, like they would correct my team in front of everybody, just, you know, all these incredible things that were happening. And so, after I leave there, my the um the head union guy calls me back and he's like, you know, I really think George, he was like, we hatched everything out and uh, you know, they're they're not gonna give you back pay at this time. But I think they give you your job back. If you just if you just want your job, if you just want to come back right now, they give you your job back. Do you think you might want to do that? And I'm like, they, you know, no, I don't. You know, but but I'm not Part of it tugs on you because you do have a family, you do have obligations, you do have these things, and like it, your identity is being stripped from you. But what gave me strength is that like they had already taken, it's already been done. To go back now would be to betray myself and my former self, and not be the dad I am to my family. As as, as interesting as that may sound to some people who say, "What kind of man are you if you're not providing for them?" Some people think one way, some people think another way. There's other ways to provide and to go back against your word when you promised your family that you want to be a better person. You know, I, th I think it's to betray your faith in what the world will provide for you if you're willing to stand up for it, man. And, but the world's testing you and, and it, it will. And I welcome the test and I will try to be the most faithful person I can and continue to be happy and thankful and, and find this new avenue.
And and since all like this is all real time stuff happening, Clint. And so that part sounds tragic. But let me tell people what's happening on the flip side. Like I started a podcast five years ago when all of like this misplaced anger and these change were taking part of my life. And it started off with me just picking up a mic and talking to myself and no one listened. Just me doing it. I loved it. I would do some book reviews and I would say crazy things. And then all of a sudden, a few years go by and a, a PR company reaches out to me and they say, hey, would you like to start interviewing some of our authors? I'm like, oh, that'd be great. I love books and I love reading and I love learning. And some of these authors were from Harvard, Georgetown. And then all of a sudden, my my YouTube channel goes from like, you know, 10, 100 people to 30,000 people. My LinkedIn page goes from zero to like 6,000 people. All of a sudden, people are like, hey, man, you want to be on this project with me? Like, uh, um, I'm on this new project called Token of Me, where they're trying to measure flow state. And these people are calling me. Hey, George, what do you think about joining this entrepreneurial network over here? You know, and it's it's because I had the courage to continue down the road and listen to my heart and listen to God and know there's a better path, man. But the road is not easy. I want you to turn, I want you to turn away from these things that didn't make you happy. And you're going to learn why they didn't make you happy. And it's going to be really painful. And you're going to question who you are. But if you're willing to have faith in me, if you're willing to have faith in yourself again, George, things will get better. And they have. Because I'm not out of the woods yet, man. I'll lose my house. I'll, I'll move back home with my in-laws. I will move to another place. But I would, I've never been happier than I am now doing what I'm doing. I feel so much more free. And I'm thankful for this opportunity because I know that life is offering me an olive branch to become the person I'm supposed to be. And I, I'm going to seize it, man. I love it. I love my family. I love this opportunity. My child started a podcast. My daughter started her own podcast because of what I'm doing now. You know what I mean? And like the conversations I've had with my wife have been off the charts. The fact that I finally came to the conclusion that the reason I don't want to go back to school is because of the way I was treated. Like that never would have came to me unless I had these challenges now. The insights I'm having about who I am have never been greater. Like I feel like such a, so much more of a whole person. I feel like I'm part of this awakening, this revival that's happening all around us. I feel like I am a huge part of it, man. My voice is I have like 150,000 downloads, man. Like th these things that we're doing, people are watching. It happened in my life, man. I'm testifying to it. What you do in your life, people are watching, man. Your kids, your community, these people that think you're crazy, man, they, they, they love you. They want to see it work, but they're afraid. They yeah. need people to be the first ones over the wall, man. That's us. Let's do it. They really do believe in you. But yes. when, they, when they speak to you, it comes across as in some ways diminishing because they're, yes. they're trying to keep you safe. And so they'll say, do you really, don't you just need to get that job and go back, kiss their butt and get your job back, you know? That'll make me more comfortable with yes. your future is what they're saying. They just want you to be safe and okay. And I, I've run into that. You know, it's like people are afraid of what you're doing. Like I haven't even left my job, yes. but like the other new things that I do, I pick up, I've got a lot of little, you know, small operations going on here. Yeah. And people are like, well, there, there's different kinds of people. Some people are like, yeah. oh, and they're kind of like, flighty. They think it'll just work if you just throw it out there. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, well, you can just do that forever. And like, you can quit your job. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no. Nah. Uh, really. um, 
you've got to learn to accept people's energy, like more yep. like where it's coming from than the exact words they use. Yes. Because like people who hear I'm doing this conversation about psychedelics, you know, they're yeah. like, man, like you probably shouldn't be like saying stuff like that. I'm like, why? We're talking. It's people talking. I'm like, we're not going on YouTube and like snorting drugs or something. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about life and about life experiences. Yes. And how those things have fueled our spirituality and our faith. How can that be something I should be afraid of? You know, and, and there's still this fear, you know, people are like, well, it's, it's so funny. You know, people will come sometimes send me an email. I'll listen to your podcast, but you know, please don't tell my wife or my brother or whatever. I know he goes to church with you. I'm just like, mm -hmm. golly, man, like the level of fear out there. Yeah. It's so, it's so potent. I, I mean, I think your story is, is inspiring. And thank um, you. And that Job reference was very kind of apropos because it's like Job's friends come to him and they're, and, you know, in, in a way, like we read that story and we think they're not his friends. They're like accusing him. But if we were to put ourselves in that situation, like if if our life just completely fell apart, what would our good Christian friends come and tell us? They would be like, Clint, George, like, what are you doing wrong, man? Like, you know, you didn't get fired. No one gets fired for doing what's right. I mean, come you on. You probably deserved it. You got to be honest and with you, yourself. You must have deserved it. If you'll just admit that, I'm sure God will have mercy on you. Just apologize, man. Just tell me you're wrong. I mean, even Job's wife said, just curse God and die already. Come on. Just get it over with. Get us out of this misery. You know? But just, yeah, God's, I mean, God rewarded Job in the end for, for his fortitude, for his, for his, his dedication, his, his wisdom. But and we got to balance that with our ego too. Sometimes we can get too charismatic with ourselves and we think, oh, yeah. I've got it, you know, and it turns out we're just delusional. So, but I don't think you're delusional. <laughs> I probably at times, I mean, I can be, you know, but well, you must be I, George. You use all these psychedelic drugs. I mean, come on. It's true. It's true. Speaking to, let's speak to yeah. that for a second. Like, okay. Why, let's do it. Like, why aren't you in a ditch, dude? Like, why aren't you like, uh, like poor with needles in your arms? Like what's going on? How can you use all these drugs? And somehow you're still like a reader, a philosophizer, a, podcaster uh, you, know. you know it's it's you know what people ask me does your wife know does your <laughs> wife know that you do drugs <laughs> and they're always surprised i'm like yeah like i tell her when i do them oh, what <laughs> like i'll tell you know my my wife will be like i'm gonna tell her like it, it's difficult like i think the i the word drug has this incredible weight and 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 stereotype around it like you know what is a drug is a drug caffeine is a drug cocaine is a drug sugar is a drug a mushroom you know i i happen to think that like like for me my affinity is towards mushrooms and i honestly feel that like when you i believe this is going to sound crazy to people this is my delusional part i believe that the world talks to you Maybe it's through spirit. Maybe it's through God. For me, sometimes it's the plants. And I'll give you an example. One time, not too long ago, on a high dose of mushrooms, I was sitting out on my patio and I have this, this, uh, like these series of palm trees. And there's this vine that snakes up this palm tree. 
And it was like in August and then had just produced this beautiful flower. And I am tripping my balls off looking at it. And I'm like, man, that is so beautiful. And I'm looking at the, and I'm looking at the plant and it's not like the plant is not talking to me in that it's using a voice to say, Hey, George, look at this. But as I am looking at the plant, I am witnessing the divine intelligence inside of it. And that's what's speaking to me. And the specific example is this, this vine has crawled up three quarters of this tree. And at three quarters of the tree, it knew to produce a flower and have that flower unfold at a 38 degree angle that will catch the three o'clock sun at 3.33 p.m. on August 27th. How does it know how to do that? Like that's a divine plant. That's divine intelligence. And I look around at the other plants. How do they know to do this? And that's when I become inspired. I'm like, how did I know how to leave my job? How did I know to stand up for myself? How did I know? How did I know that these things would happen? How did I know that it's going to be okay? The same way that plant knows. And I think that like, maybe we're part of this whole creation. And maybe you don't come into this world. Maybe you come out of it. Maybe we're all, maybe that's the divine spark in all of us, man. And I think for me, mushrooms allow me to communicate on a level that I can't other words. For me, mushrooms bring me closer to spirit. Like it helps me see the gifts that I have inside of me. It helps me see myself without any type of judgment. And think about that word judgment. Like we'll be judged on another day, right? Like when you read scripture, we'll be judged on another day. Why are we judging ourselves? And for me, when I take mushrooms, I am able to be free of my own judgment. I'm able to be free of this labels and the judgment that society puts on me, man. And I can think clear for a little bit. And that's why like, the mushrooms help me from becoming in the ditch. The mushrooms help the repetitive pattern in my, the negative feedback loop. It interrupts that pattern and it's helpful. And that's why so many people with PTSD, so many people with mental illness, so many people with learning disorders can consume this plant and say to themselves, oh, here's the, maybe I can find the answer by staring at this vine. And maybe I can find the answer and seeing the way this plant grows. Maybe that's how I grow. You know, another time like, I'll go outside and I had this other plant that had aphids and ants. And I'm like, man, why does it have so many ants and aphids on it right here? And like, I start looking at the soil around it. And like, that causes me to be like, I wonder if I could plant another plant next to it that would move away the aphids and the ants. And sure enough, there's like another plant you could plant that will keep the bugs away. Well, the plant is teaching me about relationships. Hey, George, maybe there's something you could plant in your life that would keep the negative aspects that are eating you away. Yeah, maybe I could love my wife. Maybe I could be more open and honest with my wife and my relationship. And that would keep away these thoughts that are eating me about not being enough. Mm. Thanks, mushrooms. You know what I mean? Like, thank you. Like, I think so, I know, and I know that it's this heavy connotation. And sometimes it's other people. I once heard a quote that said, psychedelics are the one thing that can have an, ad revert, an adverse reaction in the minds of others because they have their preconceived notions of what drugs are, but maybe not for you. What's wrong with seeing things from a different point of view? What's wrong with seeing things that, that are different? 
And when it comes to the idea of the stigma on drugs, or what we said earlier about people coming to us and not seeing things the way they, what I have learned is we'll come, when someone comes up and says something to you, they are telling you exactly how they feel. When they come up and they say, George, man, I'm so sorry that you have gotten fired and you can no longer provide for your family. What they're really saying is, you know what, George? I'm so sorry. If I got fired, I could never provide for my family. You know what, George? I'm so sorry that you did this thing and you know now you have to leave. Like what they're really saying is, I'm so sorry that you weren't that that you did that and now you have to leave. They they don't see the growth. They don't see the goods. And how could they? They haven't taken that step yet. But like you said, on some level, they are seeing you as an example because in the beginning we see someone get shunned from the tribe. And we're like, oh no, that could happen to me. But what happens when you see that person doing well? And this is exactly what UPS doesn't want to happen. Like this is exactly what so many people that shun you. And this is why they offer you a spot back. Because the last thing they want to see you do is be successful. Because now you're sending the signal to everybody else. At first it's, hey, you stand up, you get squashed. But what happens if it's stand up and succeed? Whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want that message out there. Right. Hey, look at George. He stood up. And, and now he's running his own business. Now he's got this own podcast. Hey, he stood up and he did this. Maybe I should do that. You know, and I think that's spirit. I think that's faith. Like it's, it's so fractal in so many ways, man. It's like this thing that you think is a disaster is the catalyst to make you a better person. And in doing so, you reach back and you help other people see a path that's possible. But first you have to see it in yourself, man. Mm -hmm. So psychedelics won't keep you in a, look, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. Doesn't matter if it's cocaine. Well, probably matters if it's cocaine, but I mean, <laughs> you know, how you do things, there's a right way and a wrong way to do them. You know, and if, if you're doing things for the right reasons, you know, maybe it'll work out. A lot of people use drugs to self-medicate, man. And a lot of people use turn to coke or meth because they're having such a difficult time in life that they can't bear it anymore. And why not have a mushroom that's a that's a, a a vegetable? It's a it's a alternative to something, and it it stops people. I work with a company called um, Moksha Journeys, and they're out of Oregon where psychedelics are legal. You should have them on the podcast. I'll hook you up with Rose. And they just had one of their first cohorts of people that were heavily addicted to substances come through using psychedelics as a treatment. And for those people who have been through different programs, they know that there's a questionnaire that for your cravings. And you know, the first week you take it, maybe you're an, you're an eight, maybe you're still a 10 on the first week. The first week with psychedelic therapy, these people that were really addicted to drugs, they went from a 10 craving to a two craving in the very first week. And if you look at Bill Wilson or if you know anything about the 12-step programs, there's a lot of literature that talks about LSD being part of the original part of the 12-step program. These substances allow you to stand aside from the shame. These substances allow you to stand aside from the guilt. These substances allow you to see yourself hurting other people and not be ashamed. That's what they're doing. They fundamentally change the way we think. It's called neuroplasticity. And people that are addicted to drugs have, a, have linked up the pleasure center of their life with a substance. Mushrooms and sometimes other psychedelics have the ability to rewire your brain so that you no longer get joy from those substances. Instead, they force you to look at the situation. And once you do that, 
once you see this horrible thing that maybe you did something horrible and now you've turned to drugs because you don't want to face it. A lot of, whether it's people that go to war, maybe people have been molested. Maybe people were molesting people. Maybe, maybe people have murdered people. I don't know. But it's usually these things that we have done in our brain that are so horrible, we can't even think about them. So we turn to drugs. What psychedelics do is it allows you to ingest this substance and see yourself from a third person perspective without the guilt, without the shame, and find a path forward. I don't know what that path forward you will be, but it will help you see the situation without guilt, without blame, and it'll provide you a pathway to start working on it. So psychedelics are, I think, a way to stay out of the ditch, or better yet, a way to get you out of the ditch, man. So yeah, I, I've got the stigma. I have a podcast about it. I have a kid. I have a wife. And they're both happy. And they go to good school. And my wife loves me. And I eat tons of mushrooms. So there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your your honesty about that. You know, it's it's yeah. Uh, it's funny. It's I guess it's like most things. It's so hard to to finally broach that subject publicly. But once yeah. you do it, you know, I haven't I haven't met people who ridicule me. You know, I've only, what I often, most often intersect with is people with questions, you know, and they're, they're yeah. polite questions. They're not judgy questions. I think lucky, probably lucky for you and me right now is that culturally there's, there's a lot of interest. And so yep. it, it allows people like you and I to speak somewhat freely on these yep. topics and to a to people who are mostly open-minded about it. So, oh, brother, I love spending time with you and talking to you. I never get tired of it. I, when I'm not talking to you, I'm listening to your show. You know? <laughs> uh, I love you, man. I love talking to you, man. You were really great at allowing people to feel comfortable, man. I, I'm, I'm super thankful for it. I, I've never been on a podcast and 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 done this and it, it gives me insight into how i can be a better podcaster man thank you for allowing me like the the the, the room to say all these things man like it's it's tough to be vulnerable and like i i'm already thinking oh gosh i said that i don't know people are gonna think a little bit but i love that you're able to hold the space for me man and and, and allow me to feel comfortable and invite me to say more man thank you very much for that <laughs> yeah i love doing it and i'm, I'm just i'm thankful that that people I guess, trust me enough to share their story and not only to me personally, but allow me to share it with others, you know, and I think healing and learning can be best done by, by sharing our experiences with everyone else, because, you know, our ego and maybe even society teaches us to kind of try to like fake it, you know, and yep. like be, be, somebody on the outside that we're not on the inside. And I don't know that this is God's grace. It's not something I've tried to do. I've always felt kind of like the same person on the outside that I am on the inside, you know? And so, yeah. but I don't, I don't know that everybody else has that freedom. I think, I think most people really struggle to be honest with their, with their true feelings. And it's a challenge, man. It's a, it's a real challenge. And I think that's why subject matter like ours resonates with people because, well, your, your, your podcast, if we hadn't already mentioned it is the true life podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's about true life, man. You, you get people <laughs> on there 
and they share their stories, they share what they're excited about, what they're doing, and there's so much beauty, so much magic, so much divine spark. And I know for those of us who are in a more structured Christian environment and thought process, that that kind of verbiage is a little bit uh, creepy, you know, mm-hmm. but you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm acquainting myself with that kind of verbiage because, because God, our scriptures, our tradition in the works of the apostles and the, the early church fathers, nowhere in any of that stuff are we taught to fake it and pretend and be something we're not. And, and that doesn't mean that we're going to be celebrated for it. You know, oftentimes people in history who, I mean, a lot of stories you shared on your podcast where, where uh, you know, you, you may be speaking to um, someone talking about ancient Christian mystics, you know, and yes. they talk about these people were not always honored in their own time. You know, it's, it's many years later where we realize the wisdom that they were inspired with. And so sometimes, man, I think if we're, if we're just being ethical and being honest, I think if we, if we share our truth with others, even if we're, we do that poorly and haphazardly, but if, if we have the best intentions, I think that, that, that God will make that work. He will use our feeble efforts <laughs> yes. to achieve his beautiful, wholesome purposes in the end. You know, so I guess as we sum it up here, do you have anything you would recommend to people? And where can people find your work? And uh and to do it George Monty style. <laughs> What are you excited about, George? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love it, man. First off, this is so amazing, man. I really enjoy the opportunity to get to be here and share my story, and I'm I'm thankful that I'm thankful that there's people. Uh, I'm thankful that my story may resonate with people. The truth is, we're all doing the best we can, man. All of us are trying our best to be the best we can. And so when you see everybody out there know it man and just just try to see just try to see that like everyone has a reason why they're doing something and they're everyone's trying to do their best i think and if you can if you can have that in your heart it helps um man i love reading for some reason to me i would anybody listen to this there's a book called the cloud of unknowing and it's by a christian mystic if if you're within the sound of my voice just google the cloud of the unknowing and read it and see what you think about it I think it's a really cool gift. And I, I got it from uh, Dr. David Solomon and he's an amazing guy too, but the cloud of I the think, unknown. I think it's available on YouTube or audible. Uh, I know yeah, it's free. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And it talks about your relationship with, with God or your relationship with spirituality. And, and I'll put a link um, to that in the notes. Just so yeah, please do. I, I, I think it's, I think it's awesome. And I love hearing about some, you know, whether it's St. John of the Cross or I have an affinity for the Christian mystics or for the medieval mystics or mysticism in general, like that calls to me. And I, I think that we are going through an incredible transformation right now. And I think that we are becoming, we're, we're seeing evolution in real time. And I want everyone to ask the question, you know, ask the question, 
what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Do it. You know, the world would be better. Try to become the best version of yourself. Do it for you, for your daughter, for your son, for your wife, and do it for you. Um, you can find me, uh, True Life Podcast. It's a There's a mystical monkey on the cover. It kind of looks like me a little bit, but... Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for everybody for even taking a moment to be here. I really appreciate it. I'm super thankful to Clint. Check out all of Clint's podcasts. He has so many cool guests. And I don't need to tell everybody here that he has a really incredible way of making people feel comfortable. And beyond that, he has got some really incredible insights. I'm excited to continue podcasting. And I'm, I'm excited to see the world change in positive ways. I think that we are at the threshold of changes people can barely understand and be confident in yourself and love yourself and those around you, man. That's all I got. Thank you for that, George. I, I before before I cut out, I want to let everybody know that that George Monty just reached out to me out of the blue. I did. I never heard of him. I was like, I've been on LinkedIn for like a week or something. I don't. <laughs> I didn't even know what LinkedIn was. I got on there just thinking maybe I could find somebody. I know it's kind of a corporate job thing you know i didn't know much about it and this guy reaches out and says hey i like your podcast i want you to join me for a conversation i'm like i don't even know what what is this you know <laughs> and so i just said sure whatever let's do it and man that was like that just started like a like a tidal wave I, I, man i don't i don't want to sound like i don't want to exaggerate this but it really was like a tidal wave of a of positivity. Like so many, I've met so many honest to God, good people. Just, I don't, I didn't know they were out there, man. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of just awash in good connections right now. Just so many good people out there. And, and for any of you who aren't feeling that, um, you can start by getting on LinkedIn and look for this guy named George Monty. Okay. And every couple days, he'll have a live podcast and you can just get on there and watch it in real time. You can comment, he'll interact with you and the guests. It's great. I mean, it really is a great podcast, George. You're doing the Lord's work, whether you know it or not. And so keep doing what you're doing, brother. And uh, I'll keep listening and I'll keep sending people your way. And maybe together, with God's help, we can create a better world here for our children. Maybe they won't have to carry the, the drama and the trauma that we've had to endure. Uh, but then that might make them weak people. So I don't know. Maybe we can find a creative way to make them strong in spite mm -hmm. of all that. So, <laughs> Well, brother, I uh, wish you the best. And uh, hang on for a minute. We'll talk after uh, we let the listeners go here. So all of you folks out there, go find George. And I'll leave uh, links in the notes to his podcast and some of the things we've mentioned here, the cloud of the unknowing, uh, all that's good stuff. Uh, well, George, until we talk again, uh, God bless you, brother. Peace. And uh, to all of you out there listening. Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you. Yeah, God bless you. Love and kindness. Aloha.
I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with the one and only George Monty as much as I did. George and I were introduced in mid-2023 and quickly developed a mutual respect for one another. Although George and I don't exactly live out our faith in the same way, I consider him a brother in Christ and a fellow traveler on my journey of faith through this life. You no doubt felt his infectious energy and his passion for life, mental, spiritual, and physical, in our conversation. So do yourself a favor and like, subscribe, and follow the True Life Podcast. You'll be glad you did. Links to my appearances on his show will be listed below in the show notes. But don't just listen to those episodes. Check out all the diverse range of guests discussing an even wider array of topics on his podcast. As always, I wish you all grace and peace. Never hesitate to reach out to me. Send me an email, contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. Speaking of email, I have unfortunately had some difficulties recently with my email software. So if you have emailed me and have not heard back, especially if you've received a failure notice, try emailing again or reach out to me on LinkedIn at Clint Kyles or on Twitter at The Psychedelic Christian Podcast because I rarely check my Facebook page. With that, I bid you all adieu. And until we meet again here at the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, May the Lord bless you and keep you.